Blog Talk Radio. Finally, pull, they finally pulled the rug out 
and they move to their digital currency, which, by the way, once they get this digital currency going, the CBC, uh, it's in the Senate right now, uh, actually. So uh, once they get that passed and they do a, do a test run of the digital currency, um, it'll, it usually would take about a year, year and a half after a test run, and then they'll implement it. So, and that coincides with about pretty much around election time, a little bit after the election of 2024. So, so uh, I wouldn't. I would look to 2025. We're all done here in, in America. It'll be a thing of the past unless we get some serious, serious wake-up calls going, and a lot of changes happen. So let's, uh, let's uh, go into some of these groups now that are around the world and country. Play this here, and uh, again, phone number six five seven three eight three zero six one six. Press one if you want to talk. The military and the police have a far-right problem. Across North America and Europe, far-right extremists are actively recruiting both military personnel and law enforcement officers. In Germany, extremist groups have stashed explosives and thousands of rounds of ammunition. In the U.S., serving soldiers are beginning to fight against the very government they're sworn to serve. This is how the far right are using troops with state-of-the-art training and high-grade weaponry to carry out violent attacks and spread their messages. Their message to the patriots in Virginia is stand up, muster your people together. This is Stuart Rhodes, founder of the Oath Keepers an armed far-right militia known for showing up at protests around the U.S. with heavy weaponry. The St. Louis County Police were out last night saying that they were unnecessary and uh, inflammatory. They claim to be entirely made up of both serving and former police and military personnel and to provide protection for businesses during civil unrest. Um, we have an outstanding team. Brian Carruthers is a combat engineer veteran. Jose Rivera, he did civil affairs in the Army. We got Ivan, our Army Ranger veteran. Dave is a combat veteran, U.S. Army. Scott, our top also. So we, we got a great crew. But behind the facade, the Oath Keepers promote a web of conspiracy theories that suggest the government is planning to impose martial law, send them to concentration camps, and install a global totalitarian government. One thing they fear most is all of us coming together and standing up united and refusing to comply. They, they, they fear the mass non-compliance. They also fear the U.S. military. Which is pretty ironic, given they're made up of so many former state employees. Riverside County Sheriff Chad Bianco is one of hundreds of law enforcement officials caught on a list of leaked membership records for the Oath Keepers. The far-right extremist group, the FBI, calls an anti-government militia. Police lieutenant is under internal investigation. Some of New York's finest may be linked to the Oath Keepers, a right-wing extremist group. And there will be a full investigation. They will talk about things like global governance organizations like the United Nations being a vehicle for tyranny that is orchestrated by some murky cabal of international elite. It's a place driven by this fight between good and evil. In January, Rhodes was arrested for sedition relating to the Oath Keeper's key role in last year's Capitol riot. If you look closely at these images, you can observe members of the Oath Keepers in a military formation known as Ranger Files. This is a standard military procedure for clearing a building. Uh, time to spare? Maybe someday. Tonight, Panera. Solving crunch time and dinner with one easy swipe. That's big. Panera. Zero dollar delivery fee for a limited time.
my son, Ricky. Which would be instantly recognizable to any U.S. soldier. But here, it's being deployed against the U.S. government itself. D.C. police officer witnessed some rioters using military-style hand signals to communicate. Small unit tactics used by the U.S. military in urban warfare. But the Oath Keepers are just a snapshot of a much wider problem. In fact, one in ten of those charged with storming the Capitol was either serving in the military or a veteran. And there are similar groups right across the U.S., such as the Three Percenters, another far-right militia known for their large contingent of police and military veterans. Disturbingly, the authorities have been aware of this threat for a long time. By 2006, the FBI had actually recognized this issue. They authored a report about white supremacist infiltration into law enforcement specifically. And they focused on this idea of what they called ghost skins. The basic idea of a ghost skin is people to do, cover up your tattoos, you know, grow your hair out, basically hold the same beliefs, but mobilize in, in a more secretive fashion. Unfortunately, that FBI report was shelved. And even now, more recently, the FBI have essentially de-emphasized the relevance of the report. In February 2021, the Pentagon released a report on the issue of white supremacists infiltrating serving military units. But they've so far failed to take meaningful action. This is not an accident. Extremist groups go out of their way to cynically recruit and exploit military and law enforcement personnel, and they know how to do it. They may be having to deal with PTSD and traumas related to if they've been in combat. And just generally, anytime you have to reintegrate into society from another way of life, that's always going to be somewhat difficult. And what the far right, you know, will offer a veteran trying to reintegrate into society, they will valorize their service uncritically, unquestionably. They will see them as someone who possesses certain skills, certain experience, certain expertise, certain knowledge. They will attach status to that. They will see that as valuable. They will give them the thing that we're all looking for, which is acknowledgement, respect. And so individual troops and officers may be vulnerable to this type of exploitation. There may well also be something in military and police cultures themselves that leaves them exposed to right-wing infiltration. And, crucially, to cover it up when it occurs. Because these institutions, again, historically, have been very much kind of white, male, heterosexual-dominated institutions. It doesn't mean every individual who's white, male, heterosexual in the military or police is a misogynist or, or a homophobe or a white supremacist, but it does create a certain kind of climate, culture within these institutions that uh, has certain parallels to the far right. And this is not just an American problem. In July 2019, police in northeast Germany uncovered a huge cache of weapons belonging to Nordkreuz, an underground extremist far-right network. The stash contained over 50,000 rounds of ammunition, explosives and body bags, as well as a list of political enemies. So far, only one member of the group has actually been imprisoned, and he only got 21 months for possession of firearms, not for his part in any larger conspiracy. And in January, federal prosecutors dropped a case against other members of the group for plotting a violent attack against the state, citing insufficient evidence. The decision to drop the case is nothing short of scandalous. They made detailed plans for exactly what they would do, how they would round up political enemies, how they would transport them on a lorry, 
They had body bags, they had quick lines, they even had a special system of patches they would wear on their uniforms so they could identify other members. No one really understands why the German authorities are so reluctant to uh, get tough with these guys. Which compared to the Islamist scene, they would have put them away a long time ago. Nordkreuz was later discovered to have grown out of a huge nationwide encrypted chat network of far-right sympathizers amongst military and police personnel. This was codenamed the Hannibal Network, founded by an officer in the KSK, the most elite unit of Germany's special forces. We have a very small group of soldiers called the KSK. One of the guys who was a soldier for 12 to 13 years, and his codename was Hannibal, started to set up chat groups all over Germany where he recruited people to prepare for the day X, for the uprising, for the day that right-wing people would take control of the country. After an investigation, it was decided that the KSK had been so deeply penetrated by far-right extremists that an entire fighting unit within the KSK had to be disbanded. That's the equivalent of the US deciding to dissolve part of the Navy SEALs for having too many Nazis. Gerade die Spezialkräfte benötigen aber ein Grundvertrauen nicht nur ihrer politischen und militärischen Führung, sondern auch des Parlaments als ihrem Auftraggeber und der Gesellschaft insgesamt. Special Forces, usually, you know, you use them, send them behind enemy lines and, 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 and cause mayhem. So this is really like a nightmare. Those guys are the last guys you want to turn into right-wing guys. Because they have this special knowledge about weapons, about explosives, about tactics. They have a lot of good connections in the security apparatus. It's very easy for them to get information, to get blueprints of buildings and all that. It's a, it's a real nightmare. Meanwhile, in Belgium, a soldier triggered a 35-day manhunt in 2021 after stealing four rocket launchers, several guns, and threatening to attack the country's leading virologist in response to COVID restrictions. And in the UK, a British soldier who vowed he would die committed to the white race was jailed for being a member of the neo-Nazi terrorist group National Action. He'd been trying to recruit fellow soldiers into the group in preparation for a race war. We know that uh, this is a problem that has existed for a long time in multiple ways. The whole point of infiltration is for it not to become public knowledge and for us not to become aware of it. All this raises serious concerns for national security so far. Though the far right have infiltrated forces and some individual military personnel may harbor extremist views, security services themselves have stayed loyal and followed orders. But some experts have begun to wonder what might happen when extremist beliefs come into direct conflict with their orders. It undermines the legitimacy of both the military and law enforcement. It's hard to say you have a democratic institution when you have active neo-Nazis making up that institution who are interested in undermining the government or, or essentially uh, advocating for various kinds of vigilante violence. And these concerns have historic precedent. During Germany's Weimar Republic, right-wing military units attempted to overthrow the government. And one of the turning points in the lead-up to the Spanish Civil War was when fascist commanders became willing to attack Spanish civilians as if they were a foreign enemy. The potential is, is that they're going to have access to some of the most high-powered weapons and be potentially involved in active combat situations where that mindset may really cloud their behavior. And even to the point of not only posing a threat to others, but internally, it's, a, it's an insider threat as well. This time, the insurrection failed, and Stuart Rhodes was arrested. 
if the infiltration of the military and security services is allowed to continue, next time the outcome could be much, much more dangerous. Well, right there, let me shut this down here. Right there, and, and no, they spin it all backwards. Nobody's trying to overthrow and, and undermine the government. In fact, what's really being, what a lot of these patriot groups want is they want the government to operate by the rule of law, the Constitution, in which they swore an oath to uphold against all enemies foreign. We don't like corruption. We don't like uh, crime being, you know, the, the, using the, look at what they're doing. I mean, we can all, I mean, no matter who you come, where you come from, what side you're on, you have to agree that the government and elements of the government within the government are corrupt. It's a corrupt, the system has been broken. It's broken. It's, it's, it's terrible. I mean, you can't, I've demonstrated it here on this podcast, calling these representatives. You can't even talk to them on the phone. They don't even want to hear you. They don't represent the people. They don't represent us. They don't care about us. They don't care about you. They don't care. And most people don't care either. And that's why we have the mess we have. They just gave another billion dollars to Ukraine. Nonsense. Nonsense. We should not be doing that. What are we doing over there? Has not, we should not be... No, I don't care. We have enough. We should be securing our border. Secure our border. But there's so much going on. I heard a story this morning about a, a serial killer down in Texas. Has been arrested. And he's in jail. And they won't give him the death penalty. In Texas. That's how bad it's getting with these George Soros prosecutors. Because, and the serial killer is an illegal immigrant. An illegal immigrant. And he was arrested multiple times before he committed these murders. And they let him out. I mean, and now you got New York City complaining about the 12,000 uh, illegals they have there, or, or 110,000, excuse me, 110,000 illegals they have there. What are they going to do? It's going to destroy New York City. Well, New York City's pretty much already destroyed. It's a cesspool. But, oh well, you want to be a sanctuary city. Now look what you got. Look what you got. And they blame the governor of Texas for shipping them up there. No, you see, this is what I'm talking about. No truth. It's not the governor of Texas' problem. It's the Biden administration's problem for not securing the border. But the Democrats won't admit that. They just won't. They will not. They, if, no matter how you talk to people, no matter what. If you get into any conversation with a, a liberal, they will about the border. They'll deny, 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 and then they'll argue, and then they'll ch- they'll flip out and change the subject and say something stupid. It's raining outside, you know. They'll, they'll go off, off topic, something, you know, something real stupid. They go berserk. Their eyes glaze over. They become their eye. They, they they give you that evil look, and they just start going. They spaz out, and they never answer a direct question. Never. They never talk facts. They never admit they're wrong. These people we cannot work with. We can There's no working with them. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do? You know, I don't want to hear about waking people up because if you're not awake now, you're never going to be awake. Wake people up, educate people. Hey, that's not going to work. Not going to work. There's nothing wrong. Keep trying. 
but it's just not going to work, man. I mean, how much education can we? I mean, what are we going to do? We're out of time, man. We're out of time. I, I, I if you just tuning into the show I'm, again, the recap. You know, I, I probably 2025. It's going to pull the plug. I mean, we have the digital currency being rolled out. Once they get to implement this digital currency, they have total control over you. That total control. You can't refuse a vaccination then. Okay? You thought it was bad with the, with the lockdowns and everything. No. Now they own you. They own your money. And they're coming after people like me, IRS. Uh, uh, they, they shadow ban you. They blacklist you. They're coming after me. I, I, I got a letter to the, uh, two couple of days ago from the IRS. They want to know about my 2018 tax returns. Said I didn't file, blah, blah, this and that or whatever. You made $199,000. You know, it's asinine. 2018. That was five years ago. Five years ago. Yep, they're coming out. i got to answer within 30 days or, or, or this or that or threatening me in the mail. Threatening me. I knew they were going to come after me. I knew it. And as soon as I knew, I saw that the story they're hiring all those. I mean, what do you think they're not going to come after people like me? Of course they're going to shut me down. They don't want me getting into public office. They don't want me in there. No, no, no. And they're going to do everything they can, every weapon they have, to shut you, shut, shut people like me down, Trump down, and many others. It's like that administrative hearing I was at on the 22nd of August. Guy, a lawyer up there talking about I don't have no moral character. My black, black character. Talking about I commit per I'm committed perjury. I lied to the judge. Like, what the hell, what are you talking about? I just in, invented the email. See when you when you print out an email, you print out the raw message. You you put the headers on it, and it shows where the he, email originated from. You can't fake that. I'm not gonna get into that story, but that's a whole other story there. But there. That hearing I went to, and then I got the order in the mail. Yes, that was it yesterday. I I go to a hearing. He's an administrative law judge. Just real quick here. This is what I get in the mail. They throw me for a loop now. Here we here we go. Post hearing order on August twenty second, twenty twenty three. Administrative law judge Melissa Owen Alasiter conducted a hearing in this matter. The undersigned hereby establishes the following post order hearing. Uh, Number one. Respondent shall file its proposed final decision affirming the board's Denny to Denny the petitioner's unarmed guard registration within 15 days of the order or on or before September 15, 2023. And now addresses me. Paragraph 2. The petitioner, which is me, shall file any exceptions and or proposed changes to the respondent's proposed order within 15 days following petitioner's receipt of respondent's proposed order, or no later than September 29th. What? What are you talking about, man? I already presented everything I want. I submitted all my evidence. I already, we had the hearing. Make the decision. Can't. Can't rule against me because I, I brought facts. I brought the statute. I got him up on the witness stand, lied and everything. But I questioned him. Real, the guy didn't know what to I'm all tongue-tied. You know, the, the, and it's a, a, a record. It's all in the record. It's a, it's a court of record, so it's all transcribed. What are you going to do? You're going to rule against me, and then what? Ha- and then what are you going to do? I'm going to take it right to the, the judicial review. I'm going to go right to the superior court with it, or I might even go to the appellate court. Now, what are you going to do? 
So you got to, you know, so basically, what this, so this explains nothing. So what it's doing is giving them a chance to give another closing argument and bash me some, and then gives me a chance to to answer them and give my and exceptions to what they proposed. I've never done. See, this is a new ground for me now. So now I've, I've never done something like this, and I'm doing all this research, and I can't find nothing on the internet because every scam there is is out there. Every trick. You click on one link, you got advertisements popping up. You got pornography popping up. You know, I mean, you can't you can't look up nothing. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And any website, Nexus, Lexus, or, or any type of law law library you try to get to, you got to subscribe. You got and then it was for forty nine ninety five. You know, it's everything's a scam. Enter your credit card info. That's all. Every it's just money. Money. They want more, 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 and they're gonna take it. It's just ridiculous, man. It's ridiculous. But. Uh, let me uh, just check the board here to see if anybody's called in, anybody wants to talk. All right, good. All right. Well, no listeners tonight, Joey? There's a guy in the chat room. I'm shocked. Gavin Moore left the chat room. Yeah, get lost, jackass. No listeners. I got... <laughs> oh, boy. Gavin Moore. Gavin Moorhead. That's the guy's name in the chat room. Gavin Moorhead. No listeners tonight, Joey. I am shocked. Good. Get lost. Go play in traffic. Put your head underneath a tire. All right? Jerk. All right. Anyway, okay, so let's go to – I've got another one here popped up here that I wanted to play, really. It's really for a, a, one of my list supporters. I, I really want to – since we're going to probably be on for the full show here. I really – I do have some callers here on the on the, on the the board, but nobody with their hand up. So, you know, we have to get back to – um, I did this a couple of years ago. We have to, you know, when people talk about education and whatnot. Well, um, the last president, anyway, well, let's talk about Andrew Jackson, for instance, for example. Andrew Jackson, he was a man for the people, and his campaign slogan was no bank. And to learn about how he operated and how he did things is really a, a great example of leadership and how leadership and how a representative of the people is supposed to act and represent the people. And to operate within the confines of the Constitution. Now, if we're going to restore our republic, these are things we're going to have to learn and understand. So, we play a little bit of this here. You know, like I said, anybody wants to jump in here, I'll watch the board. Anybody puts their hand up, I'll let you on. Okay? So, uh, we'll try to make this as painless as possible. So, I know nobody has time to learn, but just pay attention. over the swampy bayou south of New Orleans, a thick mist slowly rises, revealing two armies arrayed for combat on a grassy field. In row upon row of brilliant red, 5,000 British troops stand ready, bayonets gleaming in the early morning sunlight. In front of them, shielded behind an earthen breastwork, a motley collection of 3,500 American frontiersmen Army regulars, sharpshooters, blacks, militiamen, and pirates are poised to meet the onslaught. 
spanning Ramrod Street in the center of the American line, General Andrew Jackson of Tennessee calmly surveys his troops. Affectionately dubbed Old Hickory by his men for his courage and tenacity, Jackson knows that he has done all he can to prepare for this moment. He and his men are ready. Suddenly, rockets sweep skyward, signaling the British advance. The magnificent sight of the superbly disciplined ranks of redcoats marching toward them draws a lusty cheer from the Americans. Then, as the British come nearer, Jackson's line erupts in a withering torrent of fire. As a regimental band strikes up Yankee Doodle in the background, Andrew Jackson's booming voice rises above the din in a single command. Give it to my boys, let us finish the business today! British officer later said it was the most destructive barrage he'd ever seen unleashed on a single formation of men. Barely two hours later, it is all over. The British have lost more than 2,000 of their finest soldiers. American casualties are 13 dead, 39 wounded. As Jackson walks down the American line congratulating his troops on their stunning victory, his army erupts again, this time in a deafening cheer for their beloved general. It is the greatest feat of American arms up to that time, proving to the world that the fledgling republic has the strength to defend its hard-won freedom against the most powerful nation in Europe. It ended European um, claims that the transfer of Louisiana, which uh, Jefferson had acquired, was illegal. And I think you can make a case that it uh, altered the Spanish and later Mexican positions concerning Texas annexation. So. Um, you can make the argument that the result of the victory at the Battle of New Orleans really opened the American West. And I think if, the, if Jackson had lost the battle, uh, American expansion might have ended at the Mississippi. Old Hickory instantly gains a new nickname, the Hero of New Orleans, becoming an authentic military hero. America's first since George Washington. But Andrew Jackson is destined to achieve far more than personal glory on the muddy battlefield of New Orleans. As his career continues to soar, he will preside over a revolution in the national psyche as profound as the one which had created the nation itself. He will leave his stamp on an era. Historians will call it the Age of Jackson. Some people today might say that we shouldn't call an age the age of Jackson because no one person can really sum up everything about an age, and that, that's obviously true. But there is a way in which Jackson stood for an important change in our history and one that we are still trying to understand, one that is still important to many people. And he stands for that change because he was a figure of conflict. He was a figure that was popular with immense numbers of new voters and voters in the West and voters who very much saw themselves as in opposition to an old order. It, it may be hard for us to think of presidents before him as being symbols of an old order that needed to be overturned, but many of the people who supported Jackson felt that way, and Jackson saw himself as a person who was bringing the government to the level of the people and representing them as their tribune. And I think that's what we mean when we call him a great president. Jackson was born in March 1767 in the Waxhaw settlement along the Carolina border.
Shortly before his birth, his father, for whom he was named, died suddenly while clearing land on the family's wilderness farm. Taught to read at a nearby Presbyterian church, it was reported that Andrew took his place among the settlement's few public readers to read newspapers aloud to the generally illiterate community. Among the news items read by the nine-year-old was the Declaration of Independence. When fighting in the Revolution claimed the life of an older brother, 13-year-old Andy Jackson and his other brother, Robert, volunteered with William Davies' Backwoods Cavalry as mounted messengers. Captured by the British, an officer ordered Andy to clean his boots. When Jackson refused, the officer slashed him with his saber, scarring the boy's head and hands for life. He then threw Andy and his brother into jail. Before his mother could redeem them, both boys had caught smallpox. Within weeks, Robert was dead. After nursing Andrew back to health, his mother volunteered to tend other desperately ill prisoners held on British prison ships in Charleston Harbor. She caught cholera and died soon afterward. At 15, Andrew Jackson was an orphan with a lifelong hatred of all things British. He never forgot uh, the British. Now, there are times in his life where he really hates the Dons more, as he calls the Spanish, because they're blocking up all that wonderful expansion to the Southwest. Uh, but the British stay uppermost in his mind. By Christmas of 1784, Jackson had apprenticed himself to a lawyer in the village of Salisbury, North Carolina. Years later, Jackson would be remembered as the most roaring, rollicking, game-cocking, card-playing, mischievous fellow that ever lived in Salisbury. He once invited two local prostitutes to the town's Christmas ball as a joke. Few were amused. And he did a lot of things that showed uh, he was not always in control. On the other hand, by the time he got to the White House, a good many people have confirmed that this was a vehicle of his. Uh, he was really well under control, uh, but would make it appear that he was not in order to get what he wanted. Uh, so he, he, he's both. He is a good rational man of the 18th century and admires this kind of behavior. In his younger years, he couldn't always keep it buttoned in. Admitted to the bar, Jackson rode circuit in the Carolina Hill Country, riding into East Tennessee on a fine horse and leading another, carrying a slave girl, law books, tobacco, whiskey, and playing cards. A few years later, Jackson crossed the Smoky Mountains, passed through Cherokee Territory, and arrived at the recently established village of Nashville. Both as a prosecutor and lawyer for hire, Jackson was sometimes paid in produce, livestock, and land. By the time he was 22, it was said he'd acquired enough land to make a county. And he had taken a fancy to a vivacious 21-year-old named Rachel Robards. Rachel, a superb dancer who, like many frontier women, would later smoke a pipe, had abandoned her first husband, Louis Robards, an insanely jealous Kentucky man. Jackson and Rachel were married in the summer of 1791. With Jackson's flourishing legal practice supplemented by an appointment as U.S. Attorney General for the territory south of the River Ohio, the happy young couple were soon among the most prominent in Tennessee. But their idyllic marriage was shattered when the Jacksons learned that Rachel's first husband had not legally divorced her. Now, two years later, Louis Robards was suing Rachel for divorce on the grounds that she was living in adultery with another man. Technically, Rachel was guilty of bigamy. As soon as the Robards' divorce was finalized, Jackson married Rachel again. 
charge of adultery would continue to haunt their lives and provoke Jackson to assault anyone foolish enough to insult his beloved wife. When Tennessee Governor John Sevier, his tongue loosened by the heat of a political battle with Jackson, remarked that the greatest public service Jackson had ever performed was taking a trip to Natchez with another man's wife, Jackson went wild. Pistols were drawn and shots were fired. Fortunately, the two were separated before a melee broke out. But far more dangerous was Jackson's duel with Charles Dickinson. Dickinson was reportedly the best marksman in Tennessee, able to place four shots in a silver dollar at 24 feet. After arguing over the results of a horse race, they met on a field in Kentucky just over the state line. Standing 24 feet apart, pistols at their sides. On the command, Dickinson fired. Jackson clutched his chest but didn't fall. The bullet had been deflected from his heart by a rib. Dickinson remained on the line, staring at the ground. Jackson cocked his pistol, took careful aim, and pulled the trigger. But his weapon misfired. That might have settled the matter, but Jackson refused to let Dickinson withdraw. He reprimed his pistol and tried again. This time, Dickinson fell mortally wounded and died the next day. Well, of course, Jackson took a bullet in the chest, and um, it was still there to the day of his death. There was no way to remove it. It, is, um, it was his punishment, of course, uh, for the foolishness of this duel. An argument over another duel resulted in a gunfight with Thomas Hart Benton, then a lieutenant colonel in the United States Army. Benton was unharmed, but a bullet from his pistol remained lodged in Jackson's arm for 20 years. When a surgeon finally removed it, some suggested if he returned to its rightful owner. Benton, by then a prominent senator from Missouri, and one of President Jackson's most ardent supporters, declined on the grounds that 20 years' possession made the bullet Jackson's rightful property. Benton enjoyed reminding people that he had once shot the president, adding that back then, no man could claim to be in fashion who hadn't fought at least one duel with Andrew Jackson. As a judge riding the Tennessee circuit, some said Jackson tended to make snap judgments based more on common sense than legal precedent. But no single case did more for his growing reputation than that of Russell Bean. Bean spent a year in New Orleans away from his wife and children. When he returned, he found his wife nursing an infant not of his own making. Bean sliced off the infant's ear to, in his words, distinguish it from his other brats. Bean was arrested branded on the hand and thrown into jail. He escaped the Jonesboro jail while Jackson was in town to preside at court. Armed with a pistol and knife, Bean threatened to kill anyone who tried to bring him in. When no one dared, including the sheriff, Jackson picked up a pistol, marched into the street, and pushed through the crowd to Bean. Leveling his gaze at the man, Jackson roared, Now surrender, you infernal villain, or I'll blow you through. Bean surrendered meekly. When asked why he'd given up, Bean replied, When Jackson came up, I looked him in the eye, and I saw shoot, and there wasn't shooting nary another eye in the crowd. So I says to myself, says I, Horse, it's about time to sing small, and so I did. The Russell Bean affair is one of those stories that turns up in many of the old biographies of Jackson. 
chiefly as a statement of character and reputation. You can't confirm it, but it does make Jackson look like a tough judge, a man who will see that justice is done, even if you have to step outside the normal proceedings. As one of the territory's leading young men, Jackson was invited to serve as one of 55 delegates to the 1796 State Constitutional Convention in Knoxville. When Tennessee was admitted to the Union, the new state legislature named 29-year-old Andrew Jackson as its first representative to the United States Congress. It took him 42 days to make the 800-mile ride to Philadelphia, which was then the nation's capital. Jackson had barely taken his seat in the House when George Washington presented his farewell address. Most were moved by it, but not Jackson. When the speech was submitted to the House for approval, Congressman Jackson refused to endorse it. It was reported that he wasn't opposed to the content of the document, but found its tone to be, in his opinion, insulting in a country where monarchy had been abolished. The younger Jackson in, in, in his earlier Tennessee days was not someone who uh, admired Washington uh, in, inordinately. And, and in, in fact, the, the party of Washington he saw as a party of aristos, as aristocrats. And uh, even when he went to Congress, he uh, was one of a small number of, of Republican uh, congressmen who had uh, no interest in seeing great honor paid to Washington even at his retirement. But later on, as, as he became a national political figure, and perhaps because the charge was made so often that he had no qualifications for the presidency compared to other people who were running, that, uh, I mean, who, who was he after all? Well, he was a military man like Washington, and uh, uh, he was perfectly willing, and, and, and I think it came himself to, to feel very happy about comparisons that might be made between him and Washington. The War of 1812 began as an American reaction to Britain's so-called Orders in Council, which blocked American shipping, impressed American sailors into the British Navy, and generally insulted American pride. But it was a war that many felt never should have been fought. The Council's orders had actually been repealed two days before the American Congress declared war. The British savaged America's Atlantic seaports and burned its new half-finished capital in Washington City. A new national anthem was inspired by Francis Scott Key's poem, describing the British shelling of Fort McHenry in Baltimore Harbor. An overwhelming British force threatened the city of New Orleans and control of the Mississippi, the American West's lifeline. With the Americans being humiliated on so many fronts, Andrew Jackson, who previously had been elected the commander of his state's militia, was appointed in May of 1814 to take charge of U.S. forces in the region. He proved to be such a tough commander that his men took to calling him Old Hickory. On the morning of December 2nd, 1814, General Jackson and two staff officers rode into New Orleans. Jackson announced, I have come to protect the city. I will drive our enemies into the sea or perish in the end. Jackson insisted that black free men of color, who had been organized into militia but never mobilized, be mustered and ordered the paymaster to pay the black soldiers the same as the whites. He also enlisted the aid of a band of pirates who were based nearby, led by Jean Defeat. By mid-December, crack British troops had moved within 40 miles of the panic-stricken city. Jackson declared martial law and did everything in his power to inspire confidence. By late December, the British had discovered a water and land route through the devilish bayous and emerged on high ground within eight miles of the city.
For four days, Jackson put his soldiers to work widening and deepening the Rodriguez Canal, an irrigation ditch that cut across the British line of advance, using the excavated muck to build a low wall. By Christmas morning, the wall was over a quarter mile long, eight feet high, and 12 feet thick, the moat at its base filled with murky water of imperceptible depth. As both sides prepared for a decisive battle, British reinforcements poured in. Dawn, January 8th. Through thick fog, rockets flashed skyward. Over 5,000 British infantry were on the move with bayonets fixed. The Americans waited for Jackson to give the word. And he did. The entire American line erupted. By afternoon, Jackson agreed to a truce. British sergeants, surveying their dead and wounded in the field, noted that many had been shot in the forehead. The backcountry riflemen had done their work with grisly precision. One British soldier reportedly had two such wounds, one above each eye. One of the items that's very significant about the Battle of New Orleans was the fact that uh, uh, Jackson faced uh, the best British regulars. These were, this was, these were the same soldiers who had defeated Napoleon. And uh, we need to remember that prior to this battle, uh, Americans had never won a major victory over a European power without the help of another European power. Even the Battle of Yorktown was uh, made possible by the French Navy. So um, uh, America really had never demonstrated to European powers that it could, uh, could stand on its own. And I think Jackson's victory and the overwhelming dimensions of the victory made it clear to all European powers, not just the English, that we were a major force to reckon with. In an age when it still took a month for news to arrive from Europe, no one in New Orleans could possibly have known that a British-American peace accord had been signed in Ghent, Belgium, two weeks before the battle. But to a people starved for good news, Jackson's victory electrified the nation and made Jackson a national hero. A Congressional Medal was voted for General Jackson. Against overwhelming odds, the rough-hewn men of the American frontier defeated the same army that had just defeated Napoleon. War with Britain was barely over when a new crisis erupted. Alarmed by the influx of white settlers, renegade Seminole Indians had taken up arms and raided U.S. territory from their lands in Spanish Florida. The War Department ordered Jackson to chase the Seminoles back into Florida while doing his best to respect Spanish sovereignty. Jackson brutally defeated the natives and seized Florida. His success swelled his popularity while creating an international incident for President Monroe. Jackson's critics, among them Senator Henry Clay of Kentucky, wanted Jackson arrested for insubordination. When someone suggested that Monroe get rid of his troublesome and increasingly popular general by sending him to Russia as the American envoy, Monroe's friend, Thomas Jefferson, advised against it. Good God, the alarmed ex-president said. He'll breed you a quarrel before he's been there a month. When Spain agreed to cede all claims on Florida to the United States for $5 million, Monroe appointed Jackson as Florida's territorial governor. As John Quincy Adams of Massachusetts, John Calhoun of South Carolina, and Henry Clay of Kentucky jockeyed for position in the 1824 presidential race, Jackson backed efforts by his supporters to further his own candidacy. When the electoral votes were counted, Jackson led the field with 99 votes, 
But since no candidate had a majority of electoral votes, the election would have to be decided in the House of Representatives. Henry Clay of Kentucky was speaker. Now out of the running, Clay struck a deal with Adams. Though not one of Kentucky's electors had voted for Adams, Clay would deliver Kentucky's electoral votes to Adams if Adams would name Clay as his Secretary of State. When Adams won on the House's first ballot, Jackson's supporters cried foul. To them and to millions of citizens, the so-called corrupt bargain was proof that the federal government was being run for the benefit of the few at the expense of the many. It's not clear today that there was precisely the kind of deal that Jackson and, and the, the so-called friends of Jackson, his, his political uh, uh, supporters, called the corrupt bargain. Uh, that is, some people would ask today, what, what else could Clay have done? And, and given who the other uh, candidates were and given Clay's relationship to Crawford or Clay's relationship to Jackson. I don't think he needed a promise of the, of the position of, of Secretary of State in order to do what he did, and he was in some ways a logical candidate for that, uh, that position. But the Jackson people made it seem like a bargain, a selling out of the people's uh, feelings. The election of 1828 was one of the nastiest presidential races in American history. With a campaign slogan of Jackson and Reform, Jackson vowed that if elected, he would eliminate the national debt and end corruption. The struggle was couched in terms of the people versus the special interests. With the Hunters of Kentucky as his campaign song, Jackson was presented as a revolutionary veteran whose heart still beat with the pure virtues of the old Republican ideals. The scar on Jackson's forehead from a British saber was a badge of honor. But having made the election a referendum on virtue, Jackson's opponents did everything they could to defile his integrity. His fights, his duels, cockfighting, horse racing, his high-handed actions in Florida, his questionable marriage to Rachel, a woman who was technically already married, were all cataloged and exaggerated for effect. Unfounded charges and countercharges flew. John Quincy Adams' surprising success as an envoy to Russia was explained with the fantastic story that he had given the Tsar an American girl as a sex slave in return for a diplomatic agreement. Jackson's mother was falsely depicted as a common prostitute brought to America by British soldiers. His father, a part black mulatto. Rachel Jackson was treated to special abuse by the adversarial press. But despite the vicious slanders, Jackson emerged as the clear favorite with 56% of the popular vote. The common people of America had spoken clearly. They considered Old Hickory to be one of their own. What was different with, with Jackson is that he made a very strong case against caucuses, congressional caucuses, choosing the president. That, that he made an issue of the fact that he had received more popular votes in 1824 than Adams, who actually... Was, was named president in the Congress, had received. He, he made a case that the people's will should be reflected more clearly in the choice of, of president than had been ca the case before. Congratulatory letters and well-wishers inundated the hermitage, Jackson's plantation home in Tennessee. But Rachel, still reeling from the cruel slanders of the campaign, suddenly collapsed of what might have been a heart attack. Rachel Jackson died on December 22, 1828, 
at the age of 61. Jackson refused to believe that she was dead. He insisted that the doctors continue to bleed her, then spent a long night at her side praying she would revive. Finally forced to accept the fact of her death, Jackson was speechless with grief. On December 24th at 1 p.m., with 10,000 mourners thronging the Hermitage grounds and every bell in Nashville tolling, the president-elect laid his beloved Rachel to rest in a grave less than 300 feet from the house. For years, he was inconsolable. He prayed for the grace to forgive those who had maligned his wife. But Jackson could never forget. He would avenge himself on the corrupt politicians whom he believed had killed Rachel with their slanders. And he would do it with the full powers of the presidency. She didn't want to go to Washington anyhow. Uh, she'd been there twice and didn't like anything about it. Uh, from the very beginning, they intended to take Andrew Jackson Donaldson, a nephew, and uh, his wife, Emily, uh, to serve as the official host and hostess in the White House. Uh, Rachel looked upon her role as, as small. She didn't want to go. The whole thing had been a misery for her. Certainly, the slanders, which were widely published, uh, caused her no end of grief. There is a poignant letter to her friend in Washington talking about the arrows dipped in wormwood uh, that have been aimed at her. Despite his anger and grief, however, Jackson was determined that his inauguration should be a celebration for the average citizens of America. The event drew tens of thousands to the Capitol. The newspaper editor from Kentucky called it a proud day for the people. Others compared it to the barbarians invading Rome. At the inaugural party, Old Guard Easterners looked on in horror as a mob swept through the doors and windows of the White House, climbing furniture in muddy boots, busting china, spilling whiskey, and spitting tobacco juice on the carpets. They came from miles and miles away. Uh, they camped out for days uh, just to see Jackson. Uh, this is the first really successful, popular selling uh, of a presidential image, that he is your president, not their president. So it was a wild party, uh, so wild that Jackson had to get out of there. Uh, his friends uh, backed him out of one of the French doors, and they fled back to the hotel. Many saw the scene as being symbolic of what Jackson intended to do to the business-as-usual attitude in Washington. He filled his cabinet with men from all wings of his party and surrounded himself with a kitchen cabinet of informal advisors. His most controversial appointment was that of John Eaton as war secretary. Eaton, a close friend and senator from Tennessee, was tainted with scandal. A widower, Eaton was known to be living with a notorious woman named Peggy Timberlake, the beautiful and flirtatious daughter of a Washington innkeeper. Peggy's late teens had featured numerous suitors, two near elopements, the attempted suicide of a lovesick old man, and a duel between rivals for her affections. She finally married a young Virginia man named John Timberlake. When he died a few years later, it was rumored that he had committed suicide. Nevertheless, Eaton married Peggy, but the women of Washington refused to accept her. Swearing that he would never abandon his old friend Eaton, Jackson announced... I did not come here to make a cabinet for the ladies of this place, but for the nation. Still seething over the unavenged slanders against his own wife, Jackson became Peggy Eaton's champion. 
Mrs. Eaton is as chaste as those who attempt to slander her. After convening several meetings where Peggy's accusers and defenders presented their arguments, Jackson was convinced that she had been totally vindicated. He really liked women without ever bringing any scandal uh, down on himself about other women. He liked their company, and Peggy Eaton was among those he liked. Uh, so he would defend her. But it also produced very nice political results uh, for him that such a to-do uh, over a petticoat uh, would result in recasting the, the uh, cabinet and getting rid of John C. Calhoun for the last time. The tensions had now increased between Jackson and his vice president, Calhoun. Jackson was deeply disturbed by noises coming out of the South, complaining that the federal government consistently favored the interests of northern manufacturers over those of southern planters. Southern political theorists developed a doctrine called nullification, and the chief of the nullifiers was John C. Calhoun of South Carolina. Calhoun and his followers argued that each state could decide for itself if a federal law applied. They claimed a constitutional right for states to veto federal legislation. And if its wishes were ignored, a state had the right to withdraw from the Union. The nullifiers and the government collided over two issues. Removal of the Cherokee people from Georgia and the tariff. The Cherokee had created their own well-regulated sovereign state. They believed they were protected by treaty with the United States. But the state of Georgia refused to recognize Cherokee sovereignty or federal authority for the treaties and challenged Cherokee ownership of the land. The Cherokee appealed to the Supreme Court, which ruled in its favor. But Georgia refused to recognize the Marshall Court's authority. When asked to enforce the ruling, President Jackson, the ex-Indian fighter, reportedly said, John Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it. Though Jackson would not enforce the ruling, neither would he recognize the legitimacy of Georgia's claim. As a way out of the impasse, Jackson pushed for the voluntary removal of all native peoples from the southeast to lands west of the Mississippi. During his presidency, he signed over 90 treaties with various tribes, promising them western lands and eternal sovereignty if they would only leave their homes. But there was a fist of steel inside Jackson's velvet glove. Those tribes that resisted were driven out by the United States Army. Most Americans found the policy rational and humane and praised Jackson for so skillfully dealing with the so-called Indian question. And I think he looked back to 200 years of history um, saying that Indians had been uh, basically exterminated uh, for 200 years when they came into conflict with whites. And his practical solution was uh, two things. Either Indians could individually choose to, to accept a piece of land and, and adopt white ways and become farmers, or if they wished to maintain their culture, they could be moved further west. And those were the conditions of most of his treaties. They were the conditions that became the basis of his Indian removal policy when he became president. So I think that we, while I don't think we would condone his actions given what we know about what happened afterwards, I think his intentions were probably uh, more sympathetic to Native Americans than we generally credit him with. Far more troubling to most Americans were the South Carolina nullifiers who swore that they would resist by force rather than submit to what they called the Tariff of Abominations, which drastically raised duties on many goods the South imported from overseas. 
as their righteous rhetoric swelled, the Southerners claimed to be willing to die in defense of their rights. If pushed, they would secede from the Union. At the annual birthday banquet in honor of Thomas Jefferson, an occasion for celebrating states' rights, the first toasts were predictable. But then Robert Hayne toasted the Union of the States and the Sovereignty of the States. Calhoun shifted in his seat as Jackson rose. With his eyes locked on the chief of the nullifiers, Jackson proclaimed, A federal union. It must be preserved. To which Calhoun responded, The union, next to our liberty most dear. A few days later, when asked by a congressman from South Carolina if the president had any message to convey to his Carolina friends, Jackson told him, if a single drop of blood shall be shed there in opposition to the laws of the United States, I will hang the first man I lay my hand on upon the first tree I can reach. On November 24, 1832, the undeterred Carolina legislature passed an ordinance of nullification by a vote of 136 to 26 and threatened to secede. Jackson promptly ordered all federal forts in South Carolina reinforced and put the Navy on alert. Calhoun resigned as vice president. Jackson then told Carolina's representatives that he was prepared to send 50,000 federalized militia into their state to enforce the Constitution. When the nullifiers let it be known that they might comply with federal law if an adjustment could be made in the tariff, Jackson agreed to a compromise. The tariff was reduced and South Carolina annulled its ordinance of nullification. The crisis which had brought the nation to the brink had passed. But the conflict between the North and the South, which it had aggravated, would fester for 30 years before exploding into a bloody civil war. The important fact, I think, is that, that Jackson did stand strongly for the Union. He stood for a, a scaled-down central government, perhaps, but there is no connection between him and a state's rights tradition that would permit um, states easily to withdraw from the Union. In his first inaugural, Jackson had reduced the awesome task of reform to the simple idea of turning the rascals out. The deal-making of the 1820s, highlighted by the 1824 election, and the activities of the Bank of the United States, which had been accused of helping to trigger an economic panic in 1819, convinced Jackson that the entrenched federal bureaucracy was riddled with corrupt officials who saw their jobs as permanent and personally profitable possessions. Jackson established the principle of rotation in office as his way of bringing new faces into the government, replacing bureaucrats with men from his own party whom he believed would be more responsive to the needs of the people. While historians have accused Jackson of instituting a spoil system, he actually removed only about 10% of the federal office holders. But of all the things which Jackson believed threatened the life of the Republic, none loomed larger than the Bank of the United States. The brainchild of Alexander Hamilton, the second bank of the United States was a privately owned quasi-monopoly in which the United States Treasury deposited public funds. The United States was a stockholder in the bank but drew no interest on its deposits. Nicholas Biddle, the bank's aristocratic and dictatorial president, claimed that his bank was every bit the federal government's equal, and he had warned successive administrations not to interfere. 
the controversy over banking went back to uh, Hamilton. It went back, in fact, to England. It went back into English history, pre-revolutionary English history. There were many Americans who felt that a central bank was an agency of corruption. It was an association of the federal government with a very narrow economic class that, that, uh, that it hurt all kinds of people all through the society. With the bank's charter up for renewal and Andrew Jackson up for re-election, Biddle urged Henry Clay, who had just announced his own candidacy, to introduce legislation for rechartering the bank. Jackson vetoed it. The political gauntlet had been thrown. Jackson made the Bank of the United States the issue of his 1832 campaign. His opponents characterized him as a tyrannical usurper of power. But for nearly 55% of the voters, Jackson represented democracy proven politician with the interests of the people at heart. Strengthened by his re-election, Jackson renewed his assault on the bank by making his ally, Roger Taney of Maryland, Secretary of the Treasury. Taney announced that the government would no longer deposit its revenues in the Bank of the United States. It'll countered by squeezing the money supply, raising interest rates, and calling in loans. As deflation set in, panic loomed. As the nation suffered, Biddle pointed to Jackson as the cause of its pain. When hordes of businessmen complained, Jackson turned a deaf ear and told them, Go to Nicholas Biddle, he has all the money. I will not bow to the golden calf. Jackson was willing to let the nation suffer deep depression if it wrecked the bank. Biddle was willing to let the economy collapse to save it. The mood of the country grew so violent, Martin Van Buren wore pistols when he presided over the Senate. Jackson himself received hundreds of death threats. Then... On a cold, foggy morning in late January, 1835, a disgruntled office seeker fired two pistols at Jackson at close range. Both misfired. Jackson's escape was deemed miraculous. As Jackson's health declined, those closest to him felt that the only thing keeping him alive was the fight. Old wounds, especially the bullet in his chest from Charles Dickinson's pistol, brought excruciating pain and repeated hemorrhages. Whenever he felt particularly weak, Jackson would have himself bled, or alone. He would open his own vein. Finally, pushed to the wall by his former allies, Biddle dramatically expanded the money supply. Jackson was right. Biddle did have the money. The panic was over. For all intents and purposes, the Bank of the United States was dead. Jackson had prevailed. When asked about the greatest achievement of his presidency, Jackson replied, defeat of the bank. When asked if he had any regrets, Jackson had only two, that he hadn't hung John C. Calhoun and that he'd never beaten Haney's Mariah, the fastest racehorse in Tennessee. Jackson's presidency, I think, was the fulfillment of the promise in the, uh, in the Constitution about a government by the people. Uh, he was the first president-elected west of the Alleghenies. He was the first uh, self-made man to be elected president. He was actually the first president who wasn't born and raised in either Massachusetts or Virginia. Actually, he did a lot to the presidency. He turned it into more of a modern institution than any of them had before. It had been looked upon as secondary to the legislature in terms of creating policy. Uh, but Jackson had ideas about things he wanted enacted, and he pushed for them. 
and of course was the first president to recognize that the only link with the people of the country as a whole is really the president, uh, not the Congress, not the Supreme Court. Seventy-year-old ex-president Andrew Jackson returned to his beloved hermitage in Tennessee with $90 in his pocket. The estate was deeply in debt. But by year's end, Jackson had managed to pay off $7,000 in bills. Still, he was forced to borrow money from friends to survive. Life itself was a struggle. Each hemorrhage from his old wounds left him weaker. He was increasingly crippled by dropsy, diarrhea, and blinding headaches. Yet he continued to be remarkably active. But one bit of news brightened the old man's retirement. In 1841, the last branch of the Bank of the United States failed, and Nicholas Biddle, financially ruined, had been forced into retirement. Preparing for his own death, Jackson took a walk every afternoon to Rachel's grave. As word spread that Jackson was dying, visitors descended on the hermitage for one final glimpse of their hero. One of his last visitors was a painter, George Healy, commissioned by King Louis-Philippe of France to do a portrait for the Royal Gallery. Jackson refused to sit for the portrait until his young daughter-in-law begged him. For her sake, he did. On Sunday, June 8, 1845, ten days after the portrait was completed, Andrew Jackson died. Sometimes we think today that by, by finding out enough about his childhood or finding out enough about his personality that we can explain the, 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 the force that a person like Jackson brought to the presidency and, and to American culture. I, I think there's a lot that we, that we can't explain about him. As the mourners laid old Hickory's remains to rest beside his beloved Rachel, the silence was broken by a torrent of obscenity streaming from the hermitage porch. Old Paul, Jackson's parrot, shrieked his own farewell. Years later, a visitor to the hermitage asked one of Jackson's servants whether he thought the general was in heaven. The old man replied, If he wants to be. Jackson, a man for the people. You know, you you won't have a president like that anymore. Let me tell you. <laughs> you know, that guy was tough, loyal boy. You know, and he was loyal, and he campaigned against the bank. He knew that the bank, the 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 money changers that came out of England, they were the the disgusting, filthy, rotten core. Of, they they were everything about a bank. The bank, even the banks today. And they, and they and they came back after the Civil War. The Civil War was fought, and then of course we know what happens. The Federal Reserve was created, and the money changers then finally got their total grip on the people. And you're a slave to them today. They own you. They own everything. And uh, and pretty soon, like we talked and we talked about in opening up the podcast here today, was the uh, digital currency that's uh, it's going to be implemented. I mean, the, the people are numb. They don't know what's going on. 
they don't understand. I mean, there's people out there that do, and they're trying to wake people up and to make them understand, you know. And there's a, the CBC bill is in the Senate now as we speak. Over 50 pieces of legislation and bills were submitted in uh, 2020 uh, for digital currency. So uh, many other countries have already uh, opened up uh, expansion of the digital currency. It's done in England, many places now. So um, once they have control over, they take your money. You have no purchasing power. You have you have no property rights. You have no way of bargaining. Because money is king, and and you, you they'll own you. So just the digital. I mean, you'll have no rights at all, none. Try try to try to get a refund for something. <laughs> Man, I just, I just it's it's gonna be hell. I mean, people just don't understand. They just don't get it. But uh, let me check the board here. See if anybody try, try to jump in here. Anybody wants to jump in now? Um, six five seven three eight three zero six one six press number one if anybody wants to comment or talk here tonight and uh you know to talk i mean you know this is our country's history this is the history of uh of, of america and uh and look people don't like andrew jackson he was a racist he was a racist no no he wasn't he wasn't he was not Actually, uh, well, I mean, look what he did uh, in the New Orleans battle. Made sure that the the blacks that were fighting, that, that they received the same pay as the whites. You know, you know that was unpopular. So, you know, I mean, how could you call that guy a racist? No, 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 not true, not true at all. So, with the, uh, let's see here, I wonder where Sarge is tonight. Sarge usually likes those little history lessons I put on. He's not out. I'm not, not not involved here tonight. I wonder where he is. Let's see what's going on in the blog talk radio scene here real quick. See if I can scan the airwaves here. We've got, we've got some time here to kill. I don't see any callers wanting to press one. So uh, let's see here. Hmm. Wow. No, not even too many shows on now. Not too many uh, shows on. None, um, blog talk shows on. Huh. wonder where everybody is. Interesting. Well, I know it's not my staple night. I know it's not my usual night for a podcast, so. But I kind of figured that anyway. So let's see here. Let's. We did the first documentary. I, guys, if you want to, uh, I've got some callers here. If you guys want to press one? You're more than welcome to, uh, uh, you know, comment here, or or, or you've got something you want to talk about. Uh, the full show is yours. Here it is, right here. Okay, we got somebody with their hand up. Here we go. Go ahead, dear private caller. Well, greeting. This is Brother Warren, host of New Orleans Week Up. Mr. Warren. Okay, well, I'm glad you called in. How you doing? Well, I was sitting here eating my dinner, and I, I, I uh, was listening. I put it on, and then I heard you defend uh, Andrew Jackson as not being a racist, and, of course, that insulted my intelligence uh, oh, when you made that comment. I- did you not listen to the documentary I just played? Did you not? Well, I mean, I mean, come I mean, on. I mean, look, Andrew Jackson profited and benefited from slavery and defended slavery. Okay. How do you figure? How and do you figure? So, How do you figure he profited? He he, he retired well, with ninety dollars in his pocket. He didn't well, own well, any let me, slaves let me, let me when he died. Some, let me share some. Let me share some historical information with you from a historical uh, source here, which is the History Channel. Here, which is this All one. Right. He strongly supported and profited from slavery. 
During his lifetime, Jackson went from poverty to wealth because he personally embraced the institution of slavery. Enslaved workers grew his cotton, built and tended his house, and helped him gain a social foothold in Southern society. Jackson owned as many as 161 enslaved people, buying and selling them, using their labor to build his fortune, and even bringing them to the White House to work for him. Records show he beat his enslaved workers, including doling out a brutal public whipping to a woman he felt had been, quote, putting on airs. And when any of them ran away, he pursued them and put them in chains when they were recovered. And in 1804 newspaper advertisement for a 30-year-old runaway named Tom, he offered an extra $10 for every 100 lashes doled out to the escapee. So I'll just stop there. Okay. Okay, okay, okay. Now, who wrote that article? That's from a historical source. That's from a that's from a uh, reputable no, no, well, somebody had to write it. Who wrote it? Who? That's from the, that's from you, the history. You, the, the history channel. You know that the Jews, that you know the bankers control well, well, everything. Well, 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 look, you're not going to convince me it's a lie because I've seen these things myself. So you could stop right there because I don't buy that. I've seen the sources regarding these people. What have you seen, Warren? What have you seen? Of black people. You know, Warren, you're a smart guy. Come on now. You I know seen, that the look, bankers look, look, own look, everything. Joe, Joe, I have seen primary source documents of guys like them brutalizing their enslaved black persons. So you don't run okay, that Okay, let me ask you a question then. Let me, okay, okay, with that comment, let me ask you a question then. Then why would he demand that black, fight, black people who fought in the Battle of New Orleans that receive equal pay with the whites? Why would he do that? Well, because they needed those. I know about that because some of my ancestors were those people that fought in the Battle of New Orleans. Okay, so he treated them fairly. He treated them equally. Does that sound like a guy that's those, a racist those who brutally hates blacks? Those particular persons, those particular persons, were at the time free blacks. They had free status. Yes, yes. Okay, that's true. All right. So, so because he advocated they get equal pay doesn't eliminate him from the brutality he treated his own enslaved persons. <laughs> and then you said about the women. Now Andrew Jackson was a was a was a kind person towards all women. He he adored I'm, women. I'm he giving you a source. Now I'm giving you a source. You can go research it yourself. But to sit there and okay. dismiss it because you don't want to okay. believe it. That's all right, give me the source. Okay, okay, okay. I will do that. Give me the source. The source is you can you can uh, go to uh, what is this history dot com uh, and you can just type in Andrew Jackson uh, with history dot com is written by Aaron Blakemore. It was updated on August 29, twenty eighteen. Uh, this article is called Why Andrew. Okay, Google this. Why Andrew Jackson's legacy is so controversial. And, and okay. that's from okay. uh, history, history.com. Okay, I will. Hang on, i got another caller here who wants to jump in here. I don't want to turn this into a shouting match. Now, if we want to talk and have a discussion, uh, we right, can. Yeah. Uh, that's prime. Okay, so go ahead, private caller. Go ahead. Yeah, you know what? Now, look look here, uh, Joe. Now, I'm going to have to stipulate that probably much of what you have just heard about Andrew Jackson is essentially correct. I'm not going to argue over much about the basic facts of it. I've heard some of them myself. Others I haven't, so I can't say as to what it is that I don't know. 
But for the sake of argument, I'm willing to stipulate that everything you said is correct about Andrew Jackson. But here's two things well, hang on I'm now, concerned Sarge. about with Sarge. Andrew Jackson. Sarge. All right, Sarge, now hang on a second. Now, let, me add, let me put this out there. You know that the money changers he fought against, the bank. Now, and we know today that the banks today and the Jews control all the media and the magazines and the publishing companies like History.com. They control that. Now, Andrew Jackson was an avid he, – he, Fought against the Rothschilds about about how they were infiltrating this country and the money changers. His campaign slogan was, "No, anyone who takes on the bank, you know." They tried to kill him. They tried to assassinate him. Uh, John Wilkes Booth. What was that? What was his name? The guy. Who was the guy that tried to kill him? I forget his name. Was it was it Wilkes Booth or was that when I tried Abraham Lincoln? I uh, the assassination of Lincoln was John Wilkes Booth. Okay, who was the guy that tried? The guy that tried to assassinate Jackson. His pistols jammed, and he was and he bragged and they and he and they put him in an insane asylum actually, and then they let him go. They he, he wasn't charged, and he bragged later on that yeah. wealthy bankers from the Rothschild family hired him to kill ja- Jackson. Okay, now and now what makes you think that today they wouldn't slander this man's name by saying he's whipped and slashed uh, uh, Negro slaves? When, meanwhile, though, in the Battle of New Orleans, though, he, he demanded equal pay for blacks who fought alongside him. And that, those were his men. And a man who, who adored women, he treated women slaves too crucially. Come on. Well, and, and, he was half, they, and they claimed he was part Negro, too, because they say his father was half, a lot of Yeah, no, I remember that. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but look, you know, Joe, look. Look, like most figures in history, his his legacy is complex. I mean, let's face it. You know, one thing, nothing irritates me more than the self-righteous sanctimony of people willing to go back and apply the standards of today to people who lived in the past as though they lived in the past That's exactly true. those same set of cultural prerogatives. That is the utmost in self-absorbed solipsism, and it irritates me to no end. But like I said, yeah, I, I call yeah. balls and strikes. I'm willing to look at many of the things he said I know of, I'm aware of what you say about people who want to slander his history. I hear it all the time. Let me tell you two things for me that are important about Andrew Jackson. Number one, he won the Battle of New Orleans. You know, that helped us in the War of 1812. For that, I'll forgive him a lot of sins. I'll forgive him a lot of sins, even as I acknowledge them. So, look, if you're going to try to put me off the scent of people who are important to American history, you're not going to do it with this pettifogging about his individual character flaws. Because I can yes. cite you every single individual that you probably admire, that might be a, 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 a those person who you, who you would cite as uh, uh, idols with feet of clay, they got the similar, if not worse, personal peccadilloes. It's just the way it is. Yeah, like, like you human said, yeah, like you but said king is a communist. Like, like you said, king is a communist. I have no criticism with anyone who wants to criticize a Democrat. You can criticize Democrats. All day long, as far as I'm concerned, because they're the biggest slavers in the history of the United States. Nobody's enslaved more people in the past or in the present than Democrats do. They're doing it right now on the southern border of the United States, including child sex trafficking slavery. And they turn a blind eye to it, and they want to remind us every day about what happened 200 years ago. It's beyond belief. Yeah, yeah, that's your guy, Warren. What do you want to say about that now? Let me say this, Joe. Joe, let me respond to that. Joe is the blame for what happened 200 years ago because he's focusing on Andrew Jackson and playing a little documentary about a man who lived 200 years ago. So if you want to blame somebody about focusing on something 200 years ago, blame Joe, the host of the show. 
Well, he's part of our history, I don't really Warren. blame anybody. I don't mind anybody yeah. doing an accurate history of any significant historical figure. No, Joe, I'm and not complaining. Joe, I'm not complaining. Uniformly Joe, bad I'm not complaining. Any more than it's uniformly good. I don't mind Joe Gibson playing clips about Andrew Jackson that highlight his positives. I know he had positives. I know he had negatives, too. No, I'm not fooled by anything. Anybody portrays on a one-sided picture of anyone historically. Andy was against the aristocrats.
Then you have and a we don't have African American history in this country, Warren. We don't have that. Oh wait, well, I mean, no, no. In the state of Florida, <laughs> so you're not listening to what I'm saying, Joe, because you're not schooled on what AP courses are. Well, I'm listening. Advanced placement courses for other particular groups in history are allowed, but when it comes to black people, that's a problem. And so now we see this problem being displayed when it comes to the history of black people, number one. And then number two, we see an attempt to actually change and rewrite the history to make slavery appear to be something, some positive elements about slavery. In other words, you can't talk about slavery now unless you find something positive about it. That's not what that court says, and you know it. It that's doesn't say that. Yeah, I, I heard, heard, I heard the progenitor, a prominent, well-regarded African-American scholar who explained what the intended was, and it does no such thing. Number two, Joe, there are classic literature by African-American authors are being completely banned throughout the state of Florida. Does he, uh, he, he, he change the subject again? He says one yeah, thing I about don't know about that, Warren. Anyone, to any Never, 
Yo, never in any of these debates or discussions is a historian, a scholar ever utilized by Florida at all. It's political. It's politicians of the right who feel that discussing enslavement is insulting to white people and white people's sensitivities. Uh, they well, well, revised the curriculum to be in accordance with Florida state law, and the curriculum has now been approved Florida state by the Florida, Florida Department state of Education. Florida what you just said wasn't is true. They didn't the ban it permanently. Joe, they the sent it back to revision. Joe, the Florida state law is written to recent law. That recent law, He knows it's true, Joe. Joe, that recent law is written to become an excuse to stop the discussion of African-American history. No, it's not. Well, it's, it's, well, well, okay, well, hang on, Sarge. Hang on, Sarge. Hang on. Let's talk about the 1619 Project curriculum challenges teachers to refrain from U.S. history. Let's talk about that. What? What? So? What? What about this? What? What? What is it? Should this be allowed or or not allowed? The 1619 Project is a Yo, collection of essays and literary works observing the 400th anniversary of the beginning of American slavery. Yo, let's start. Let's start. Let's start. Let's take one thing at a time, Joe. Have decided 
they don't want certain things even mentioned or talking about. So they, they, declare, okay. they declare the courts illegal according to Florida's law, which was written recently, I mean passed recently, just to, just to stop stuff like that. Okay. Okay, Arkansas, now. Arkansas has, has, what Arkansas has done, Arkansas has decided not to pay for the course or the test and not to give it value. So that's their way. Because, now, I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why. Because one full lesson plan in the curriculum is based on a Hannah Jones essay, for instance, The Idea of America. It, it asks students to consider the values stated in the Declaration of Independence and how they work and fail in American society today. <laughs> it, it criticizes American what? history. It criticizes what? What? our Constitution, our foundation. But you, see, but, you let, but see, Joe, you let the students debate that. You let them talk it out. But that's, that's what not the course is false, though. That's the point. That, have you been to college before, Joe? Have you been in a college class yes, before? Yes, I have. Okay, yes. so you should know. You should know in a college class that there is a sort of intellectual freedom for people to engage in discussion. <sighs> but it's disgusting. Have you been on a college campus lately, like Ivy covered North Koreas? Are you kidding me? I know. <laughs> All right, Sarge, go ahead. Now it's your turn. Let Sarge counter this. Now. Right, go ahead. I, now. Think it's better, I think it's better that we listen to an extinguished scholar named William Allen, the black African-American scholar, 50 years in the business, multiple degrees and PhDs. Let him explain better than I or uh, Brother Warren can do as to what the intent of the curriculum was. Why don't we listen to him? This is about two minutes. He can do a better job than either me or Warren or you, Joe. Let's listen right. to what he has. All right, can, can you do it? Yeah, All right. I can do you got it. it. Listen up. All right, let's do it. That's okay. Let's listen to a black scholar. Okay, go ahead. I do not give you Kamala Harris's motives. They're invisible. I don't know them. We can all have suspicions that there's a dishonest purpose afoot. But what's more important than that dishonest purpose is the truth. And this curriculum is devoted to telling the truth, whereas Kamala Harris has retailed a lie. Now, it may only have been a falsehood the first time she stated it, but when you repeat a falsehood, it becomes a lie. Tell her right now what specifically this component of the slavery course teaches. Well, permit me to have Frederick Douglass tell her. He wrote an autobiography in which he described how the mistress of his slave owner began to teach him to read. She pulled back the curtain through which a glimmer of light shone before the master forced her to close it. But that glimmer of light was enough for Frederick Douglass to illumine a bright flame that he exploited to his benefit and his country's benefit thereafter. Such examples are numerous, and they are retailed in the stories of people who suffered the indignity of slavery time and again. And quickly, permit me to say, what this curriculum is about is having people who live the experience, who live the history, tell their stories. And nothing is more important than that we never, ever erase the stories that the people who live the stories tell. All right. So, well, there you go. Now, like I said, everything they're saying about this course is distorted, 
and just honestly plays completely out of context. If you look at the way the program is written, yes, that includes the law, because much of the 1619 project is intended to elicit guilt and blame and place the blame for uh, the sins of the past on the co- contemporaneous population of the United States. There's no doubt about it. I've read the 1619 project. I've got it right here in front of me, and I can read passages from you that support that claim. That's why it was eliminated from this, uh, the uh, uh, Florida curriculum, because, again, it is contrary to those aspects of the law that explicitly forbid that sort of information to be taught to students in the school. Yes, that's what you can talking in the private. Joe, 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 yes, you can, can. Yes, you can, but it should be taught in the privacy of the homes across America, not, not if that's what they want to talk about, not in school. Joe, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. The, the, the black scholar who was talking use a flawed example. Black people were not allowed to be taught to read and write. It was against state laws. The the wife of the master clandestinely showed him how to read. So it was against the law. So that's not no example for anything at all. Secondly, Frederick Douglass worked about his life in enslavement, talks much about the brutality of enslavement and his encounter with the overseer that he had to get into a fight with. So that scholar, that black person, that was a very flawed example, and it even made him look even more stupid. All right, we got Pianke on the line now. Pianke, do you want to jump in here? We're talking about critical race theory and, and why this stuff, why it was banned from most of the 18 states. We're not talking about critical race theory, Joe. We're not talking about critical race theory. Now, you are a mulatto, Warren Carter. 
Hey, 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 Joe, why don't let, let me say again what I just said, and let's see if he can disprove it. How about that? Yeah, I want to hear you disprove it. Yeah. Let me finish. Let me yeah. finish. Oh, good. And see, this is what I mean about this guy. He's a liar. Hang on, Sarge. Hang on. Let me finish. Sarge, let me finish. Sarge, let me finish. If they were slaves, so damn what? They got their ass kicked. Okay, but one, can you prove, can you prove what Sarge is saying and Pianchi is saying is false? Can you prove it, Warren? Everything, they, they have no data, they have no documentation. Right, I'm going to give you the I want you to disprove. Why do you keep yeah, throwing it in there? Why do you keep throwing it in there? Why do you keep throwing Hang on. Yeah, just, uh, go ahead. Before, then all you got to do is prove that I'm lying. And before yeah, I want to hear proof. They were slaves. They were not citizens of the United States. See, what I get look, about yo, this guy, man. He yo, knows I'm telling the truth. He just eats so, like a rat. Yo, when I read they you, reach out and they start biting. Yo, the other all right, night, Warren, yo, let's hear what Warren has to say. Go ahead, you, Warren. Yo, when I read to you that quote, that Tiaki said, he denied he said that. He's a liar. Uh, all right, all right, he listen, let's not get everything. into that. Yeah, if we're going to attack each other, there's no point. What's the point? I want to hear facts. I want to hear I'm facts. You facts. I want to hear facts. Yo, the other night, you said he was about to find the subject Yo, yo, you was about to Why are we changing the subject? The person who said that quote, you was ready to pounce on them as anti-American. The minute I said Pianchi said, you started to back, backpedal, backstep. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. You asked me a question. You said, what kind of person? I said, obviously, that's somebody that feels at the time that they were did not like America. No, they you didn't say all that. You said no, that's Joe. Don't fall for it. I know. Listen, listen. It doesn't matter what somebody said. I've said things in the past, too, that would make me sound like a complete racist because people use it against me. It doesn't mean that's who I actually Maybe, am. Hey, hey Joe, let me tell you what I <laughs> said. Was, I'm going to give Brother Warren some fodder for his little lies. I used to believe that white people who were mutant hybrid created on the island of Patmos 6,000 years ago by the big head <laughs> scientist Dr. Yaku, because I was an acolyte of the Nation of Islam, and I read the yeah, Mutant Boy and Elijah Muhammad. <laughs> I used to believe that, yeah. boss. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Man, Howard, now, Warren, why don't you go distort something about me? Because when I was 15 or 16 years old, I used to believe that crap. Yeah. I mean, Warren, I don't have any problem with any of you guys' character. I mean, look, you are who you are. We're having a conversation here. And, and I'm sure Pianke's best interest today is in the America and wanting to see this country thrive, not destroy it. And I mean, you know, unless he's a real good actor. Let me... Let me yeah, that was then. This is now, Warren. What matters is what me, you believe now and why hang on, hang you believe. Sarge, 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 hang on. Let, 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 me correct my, let me correct myself. It wasn't Batoon Cookman. It was Cheney. Cheney started in 1837. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, see, Warren, all I wanted to hear is some facts, though. You're making accusations. See, you can call Sarge a liar if you want to. You don't get worried about being factually correct. He doesn't 
using my it's correct right. himself yeah. when he makes an error. With, 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 with Brother Warren, he either changes the subject or calls you a liar. Yeah, yeah, and that's not fair to the discussion, Warren. That's not fair. I mean, that's just wrong. I mean, I, I don't do that to you. I mean, well, did you hear me call him a liar at all or criticize Warren at any time, as, as many times as I could have? No, I don't, you know, but I want to hear facts. I mean, I'm willing to, when he made those comments about Andrew Jackson, you know what, Sarge, you came in and backed it up. So, you know what, I'm going to look back at it. I'm going to say maybe I was wrong at some of these things I said. But the fact of the matter may, still remains, I still admire him as being the president who stood up against the banks. And you know my position on banks. I believe they're the root of all evil in this country. You know, and, and that's yeah. how I yeah, stand. He did a few that's good things as a Democrat. He wasn't a 100% bad guy. He had some bad things. Yeah. Hey, I can talk about Martin Luther King, too. Yeah, actually backed up. But that's not that's yeah. not the story of the whole man. Exactly. It's a warrant. You know, okay, the four years be, now. I was the oh, God, I, I'm sorry. I was the look, I was the field coordinator for African Center curriculum for the St. Louis chapter of the National Black United Front. We went around to the schools in other states around the country that was interested in the content and the resources, whereas they could put that subject matter curriculum in their school system. Schools like Detroit, they had it in every discipline, including gym. Warren, you got the floor now. Go ahead. Well, give him a couple minutes. Go ahead, Warren. You got the floor. You want to re- retract? Re- I, uh, I, 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 maintain, I maintain my position that the two regular co-hosts you have are complete liars. And I've exposed them on my programming, and I still maintain they're living an alter ego through this uh, platform, this social media platform. They're fraud. Okay, now, now. Well, I'll tell you what. what yeah. He's he a dying psychiatrist. He's bogus. He you got no degrees. How many degrees is the what am Grab I lying? Yeah, what you know what I'm lying? Hey, I came up in this society. I came up. That's all he does is talk down to people. He's so much I came up in this society. He's so much more elevated than the rest of us. I came yeah, up in now, this society. Now, that's like the comment about China. Do you know China is, is their economy? The trends report came out, and China's economy is in shambles right now. Do you know that, Warren? I mean, or unless the Trends Journal is wrong. Their debt to buying ratio is off the chain. They're in economic trouble, and they know it. They're going through a very bad recession right now. Yes, and the only way out of it is war, and that's what they're trying to do. And I have to tell you what, I don't want a war with Russia or China, but that's what we're looking for right now. Unemployment off the chart right now amongst the young people. Yeah. yeah. Warren, go ahead. You want to make a comment on that? Well, the, the sources that you're referring to are the same sources you say are lying about the election and lying about Donald Trump. So what you guys don't understand is you're being used different ways. Uh, the information on China coming out of the United States is completely manufacturing consent for war against China, major power conflict. China just completed a, a, a 5G uh, smartphone that's better than the Apple iPhone and it's being it's very popular. So those things are not true, that what you're reading about China, because we're in a Cold War situation, you have to question what you're reading about Russia and China. So in other words, well, you, can't, you can't, hold on, wait a minute, Joe, you can't, you can't 
not believe. You, you can't say, wait, the U.S. say something bad about Russia. You can't say, oh, they lying about Russia, but then say something the truth about China. It's the same thing. They lying about it's propaganda. Gerald has China been pretty much on target and right about many of the things that he has said in, through his Trends Journal magazine. Many people have backed him up, and he's not for this establishment in the United States, trust me. He's against mm-hmm. government. <laughs> You know, so I would I, I have to take what he has to say very very seriously, and we and look at the money markets and the and the strength of the uh, dollar and what the, the Chinese yen. I mean, there's just no way. There's no way that he's lying. There's no no way. Joe, he, he, I trade, I trade, let me say this, Joe. Yo, we're not gonna we, we gonna agree. We gonna agree not to do. We gonna we gonna agree not to agree on that because I have I I'm exposed to a different set of sources that say different than what you're reading. Okay. What's your source? Joe, I trade the Chinese yen every day, and I can see what strength and weakness Another lie. That's another lie, Joe. That's another lie, this guy. That's another lie. This guy is lying about everything. It takes about 7.5 Chinese yen Because through this, because, Joe, listen to me, young man, through this social media platform like Twitter and others, People live alter egos. These guys are not who they say they are. I, These guys I've are spoken, I've spoken to them personally. Who am I then, Warren? Why don't you tell me why? Yeah, who is Tarz? Explain, explain who, who they are. Who am I, Warren? Tarz, you, Tarz, you, 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 you are who you are. But why don't you tell Tarz, me Tarz, who let me tell you who you are, Tarz. Tarz, let me tell you who you are. I know you who are, you are, Warren. You are, Let's tell you who you are. Let's and tell Joe, you I don't know why you let this individual come on your show and disrupt things. He does that's that another every thing, show. Joe. Joe, that's another thing. Joe, 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 he likes to go and on other people's shows and tell them who they should why have come, on, why but come, he don't have his own why damn show. He don't have his own damn show. But that don't mean anything, Warren. That don't mean anything. You know, I mean, the guy was going to tell me who I am since he knows better than me what he, what my life experiences are. Let me ask him John Wayne, and that's the alter ego he's living here when he calls in on y'all shows. Okay, well, sorry, I'm definitely not turn. somebody who's been through a war like John Wayne, because John Wayne was never in the armed forces. I was, you Thanks, stupid yeah, idiot. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah, in the yeah. National Guard, too, and I got called up for two more wars. So you mm-hmm. go straight to hell with your life. And any time I don't believe none of it. I don't believe none of it. And only then, when you're ready to put money on the line, which we will arrange through a broker, I will prove you my bona fides.
Now, Warren. Now, Warren, you want to attack Pianchi. Now, let's hear Let's hear you say what he is, because I've known both these guys for years and years now, you have to, so, and I've spoken to them privately. You're enjoying so, it. You're enjoying this, aren't you? No, <laughs> no, no, what he's doing, man. He's a weasel, ain't he? He's a weasel. You're not getting the kick out of this, bro. I mean, he is one weasel kick. if there ever was one. You diverted from the topic that we were originally talking about, which was critical race theory in the schools, which we were not talking about critical race theory, Joe. We were not talking about critical race theory, Joe. You know how I teach critical race theory in, in St. Louis with uh, uh, young black students? We take them on field trips and we di- drive around uh, downtown and I show them the buildings that I erected. Fraud, fraud, <laughs> lie, a lie, another lie. A lie, just complete lie. I'm telling you, Joe, these guys are not who they say they are. Hey, man, why didn't you take a picture of yourself with Putin at that conference? You went to the BRICS conference down in South Africa. What are they trying to do, Warren? Why don't you take a picture of you with Vladimir Putin down there at that They're Brick taking Scott. you for a ride, Joe. They are Why did you lose the opportunity to take a picture with him, Warren? But Warren, but Warren, you do this on yeah. other podcasts, too, shows, too. People Brian, wait a minute. I want to know why Brian didn't take a picture with Vladimir Putin when he was down there at the Brick Conference down there in Durban or wherever the hell it was. You know, I mean, Putin we diverted off the top. If you stopped up in news, Putin, what, Putin wasn't even there. Does it make? If it, man, what difference does it make? They got their ass kicked. And if they were so valuable, 
the people where they came from wouldn't have got rid of them. A lot of them. Yeah. I mean, so what? What difference did it will, will make on today's uh, today and, and how we operate today in America, Warren? Well, I mean, that's uh, the, one the, thing the I point, find about. The point, but see, the uh, point real is quick, this, anybody who's listening, point, if you well, if point, you hang up, Joe, you won't get back point, in. So you got to stay on the line. Go ahead. Let, let, let me answer that, Joe. Let me let me show you how you yes, how you rebut a person's it. point. Okay, this is how you rebut a person's point. The black professor that Sarge played in his interview to justify the curriculum and to to push back against the criticism of the of the curriculum he used Frederick Douglass uh mistress that is the the slave master's wife teaching him how to read but he had to come back and say that it was clandestine okay he was not permitted to learn how to read and write in his situation so that's not even an example because enslaved persons were not taught to read and write as some skill and when did these laws, and when did these anti-literacy laws come into effect? Did you notice what he just said? Each state, each state enacted laws constantly in their state legislatures, and particularly when there were slave revolts or slave conspiracies, the law got even harsher over time. And what time there was a slave Denmark Vesey, 
study Gabriel Prosser, study Nat Turner, and we can go on and on about the 200 or more recorded slave revolts on North American soil. And, and what productivity? What benefits would we have in this nation? And they all got their ass kicked. Because, they they ass because, because you know what? There was something you would never be. They were men. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Now, now, you got to clear that. Wait, 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 yeah, see, you're calling them names. Smart I didn't people. hear P.I. call you one Smart name. P.I. can't call you people. one name. Smart you better Smart go check this stuff for your records. Put it out there. Let me say this. Joe, let me say this, Joe. No matter how much you and I disagree, I have a show. These two characters don't. They don't have their own show because they're frauds. You just made know, I, I don't come to your show. You have to yeah, my I mean, show, I, you liar. You're liar. You have to my show. You still listen to my show. Prove it. Prove it. Prove it. about a book this young lady wrote about the presidents of the United States in a relationship with black people. He was one of the callers that called in. So I'm about to what did I ask you? I mean, I mean, what was the discussion? You know, I'm put it in there, and then I want you to tell me what whether that's him discussion? or not. And then, and then, and then, and then that's going to prove all my point that he's a liar, Joe. All kidding aside, all kidding aside, what was the discussion? I might have called it. I might have called oh, by mistake. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh what was the discussion? Now, you see that, Joe? No, I'm not say saying it. Was it. Was I said I might have. What say was the discussion? Yeah, listen to him, Warren. He's not denying that he was there. He's trying to remember no, if he, he wasn't. Oh. He might have misremembered. See, oh, I mean, Warren, so I've told you know how many if shows I've called so into. Important, Joe, you, if it was so important, you wouldn't have a hard time remembering how Joe, awesome this man, it was. Joe, First, let me, let me put the link in here, Joe, and then after the show, you co- you in fact you copy the link and put it in another window, and then you can fast forward. You won't wait for the caller, and you'll hit. And there were other shows he called in, but you see how he's trying to backpedal now. That's how he's just no, he's not. He's not. Hey, Joe, from. And when I first called into a show, he was actually very civil. He actually tried to have a conversation, and he was actually, most of the time, actually responsive. That ended pretty quick when he couldn't convince me to the righteousness of his cause. I mean, I've got other people from other podcasts listening, too, right now, like Lucid Libertarian. She's listening, and, 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 and a few others, actually, that are on the line listening. So if you guys hang up, you won't get back in. But, but Warren, you know, you call into all our shows. We let you have a voice. But you're saying the same thing. You're anti, like, anti-American. You're like, you just don't like America. And, and, and it just it appears that, like, whites are all racist. We don't like blacks. And, and the blacks are, like, having a detrimental problem across well, America Joe, today. Joe, let's, take, Joe, let's take, Joe, let's take one thing at a time. I put in the chat room the link to that particular I see it, I see episode. It. And, there, and there are more 
where Piaki called in, where Piaki has come on this your your platform and adamantly has denied that he's participated in my shows, and now he's trying to soften the position. I want the whole world to what see how dishonest this man is. What was the discussion about? Uh, I tell you and what, I don't deny it, and you know you don't want to talk much about that. I'm gonna say this, huh? Warren. You hate white people. You hate part Joe, of who you are. Joe, you Joe, part white. You now, Warren, you, you, you do come across that way. You do come across that well, way, well, though. Wait, you wait, do. Wait, 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 wait. I'll address that, but don't deflect. See what happens when I corner you guys. You guys try to escape out of the corner. You ain't got no corner. I'm going to Hold on, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The subject right now is Pianchi has denied calling into my show and participating, and I have put one example, just one because there are others, where he has done that, proving my point. No matter how much you let me explain something, Joe. This guy loves the blog, doesn't he? Keep quiet, me, man. You ought to be reported to the Animal Cruelty Society. Quit beating right, this guy. Let Bianca let Bianca make his point. Let I wouldn't have called in on his show because he hates white people. He hates America. Okay. So I believe that. I believe that. You come across that way, Warren. Show, unless it was about Mary had a goddamn little lamb. Now, Warren, why do you come across that way? Can you explain yourself? I gave you, Joe, I gave you Exhibit A, and you open it up in another window so when we finish tonight. Okay, can we go to the next subject, Warren? Can we go to the next subject? Can we move to the next subject, please? He won't let go. He's like a tick. Warren, why is it that you come across as hating white people in America? I prove my okay, point. You prove it, you prove it. Okay, you prove it. Okay, now let's move to yeah, 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 Move on, all the please. Time with 100% yeah, we got on. Got yeah, you prove Move it. on, Warren. For the sake of the audience, uh, why oh, is it that you come across anti-American? Y'all hate when I call you. Oh, y'all hate me, brother Warren. Warren, Warren. 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 okay. Warren. It's done, that point. Okay, let's move on to the next one. For the sake of the show, yes, I called in and I recited the Black Power Allegiance and go on to the next conversation, huh? Let's leave yeah. it alone. Okay. Yeah. Now, Warren. Yeah. 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 Why is it you come across as anti-American? Why why is America done to you? I'm a Mexican fucker, I just gotta beat a little bit more. Why is what has America done to you, Warren? That you're anti-American, anti-capitalist, and and pro-China? Why? I'm curious. A lot of people want to know that actually. Why are you anti-American or anti-white? I think I, I think here's the difference between me and guys like you. I come from a different experience. See, I'm not, I'm not like all you other guys. So I bring to the table the experience of other demographics in the American context. You know, there's a Nigerian writer, okay? Her name is Ngozi Chimimanda, and she's, uh, wrote, she made a statement. She said, the danger of a single narrative. And see, you guys want to have one narrative for the American experience, and you have no tolerance for other narratives and other people's perspectives. That's what I bring. So naturally to you, Joe, naturally to you, naturally to you and others who think like you, it'll be anti-American because it's threatening to you. It's threatening. Okay, let me make a comment on that, Joe. But to us who are able to articulate our position is liberating. 
I uh, walk man. while I walk. Hang on, stop Bianca. Let Bianca speak. Let Bianca speak. Go let ahead. me make a comment. See, I respect that you come from a different perspective, but you try to make me believe it. I don't want to believe it. I don't want my kids believing. One, I hate to tell you, I wouldn't allow my kids to play with yours. I don't want my kids learning that mess. Can you respect that? Okay. I, I find it interesting, Joe. He just told you that he worked with an Afrocentric school program. You see how he contradicts himself? Can't you answer the question, Warren? Warren no, he just made a comment to it. Answer the question. I answered the question. What else do you want me to say, Joe? <laughs> I didn't hear what it. Saying, I mean, I bring, I bring a different, I bring, I bring, I bring a different perspective. I bring a different perspective than what you're accustomed to, Joe. So what perspective well, is my perspective? Hey, I'm not unaccustomed to it. I've been hearing it forever. I'm not unaccustomed to it. You get fans? I've been hearing it ever since I was an adolescent. But hang on for a what minute, sorry. Do you understand? Do you understand that myself in particular? And I get, I don't know about so. I don't want to hear that stuff. And I'm black. My kids well, are black. Well, why don't you? Yes. Why don't you stop and, calling no, into my See, let's have stop civil calling into my show. Where we don't. Why don't you stop? Why don't you stop you calling see, into my that's program? That's another thing yeah. they got. They don't want people to talk. Have you did it one time, and you're gonna hold into that forever? No, he didn't do it one time. He did it several times. He did it several here's times. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. If you had a if you had a show where you were talking about hating white folks, talking about that crazy mess that Francis Chris Wilson put out there, talking about penis sizes and all that, I don't want to hear that. And Warren, that's all I don't they, that's what they talk about on, on Joe's show. Warren, they talk about on Joe's show. Listen, Warren. And, and then, and then and one time, man, that. when you had cited Francis Cross Wilson as an intellectual source, I picked up my book, Keys to the Colors, uh, ISIS Papers, and I went to turn to page 96, and I read a passage from it, and you told me she didn't write that. I swear to God, you did. You said, oh, she didn't write that. I'm looking at the book. I gave you the Library of Congress number. I gave you the IBSN number. I gave you everything in this book I got. I'm looking at it right now. And you told me she didn't write that. All right, Warren. That. Warren, you got a reply to that? No? Yeah, I'm sorry. I was I was typing something in the chat room. What, 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 what is that? I gave you the Library of Congress number, the edition of the book I got. Look, I gave the book let edition. Me this, I gave the let me say this, Joe. I gave you everything. Joe, let me I turned to page 96, all, 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 and I read something from there that, Joe. that she all, wrote that I had a problem Joe, with, all, and you all, said all, she yeah, didn't Joe. write it. Joe, all, all right, go ahead, you got to do is stop calling, stop calling into my show. If you don't want to hear what I got to say, don't call into my okay. show like you okay. did, though. Yeah, okay. He won't okay. answer questions. <laughs> Can you, you answer Sarge's question? She's like a rat. Can you answer Sarge's question, Warren? Or you can't? Actually, I don't know what his question was. I don't know what his question was. I don't know what his question was. I don't want to respond to it, and I won't ask him anymore. See, I don't even know what the question yep. is because all these do is scream and yell to try to prove a point. Well, right, right, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. That's good enough for me. You don't want to answer, let, you don't have to. Let me give right, you so my reply. If I, by mistake, if I, by mistake, wander into your store, your show, please inform me what it is so I can get the hell out of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Whatever. Now, you just heard someone in the chat room. Now, hang on. Now, guys, don't say nothing. Hang on. Warren literally said that he is better than everyone else. That is the superior mentality of him, very fitting of a narcissist personality. That's what Lorianne just said. Now, that's her comment now, Warren. And, and, and Warren, you didn't say nothing. You said, Lorianne, stop playing the, the, the Karen, Karen on her, her card. What's that? I mean, you know. Oh, bad boy. Bad boy. Yeah, I mean, come on now. Come on now. Well, I mean, you know. What tell me the what chat you room? look like. Tell me what you look like so if I ever see somebody stranded alongside the road look like I ain't stopping. <laughs> Warren, Warren, the bottom line is this, is that, look, there's nothing wrong with having a discussion, uh, but it turns into man. arguments, and it always reverts back to the same thing. The black people of this country are, are enslaved, They're, that it's always false. The government is teaching uh, anti-black. To, everything is, you know, it's, it's just pitiful. It turns into the yeah. same discussion, and you say you bring a different narrative, and, and but you're not telling me what narrative that is. mentality to understand the gist of his argument, because we're simply plebes who are just uh, who are just but, cursed with a complete lack of understanding. We're just we're just, we're just incapable what, of understanding the. Yeah, he, he tells me I don't know I don't know any better of his brilliant remarks. Hey Joe, Joe Gibson, yes. you know why come that cultural theme curriculum didn't go no place? Because blacks themselves don't want it. That's why. Yeah, that's true, Warren. Blacks that's true. don't want that for them kids. Yeah, that is yeah, true. That, that is uh, very he's, true. He's a piece of work, but he's a study in classical Joe, Marxist pedagogy. Warren is Joe, a study Joe, in I'm classical Marxist pedagogy. He is a He wants to say something. Go ahead. Go ahead. Let me say this, Joe. I've learned that everything they say, you're going to back them up by saying that's true. See, it don't bother no, me because I have my own platform. I have my own platform called New Orleans Wake Up where I articulate my position. I understand where you come from and others who are in your circle come from. But I know one where thing, come from? none of you, none from? of you, none of you could stand up to me. You need a whole army to deal right. with me. You're right, and you ain't yeah, right. Well, you know, you know, you know, you know Joseph Pebbles, he had the bull cashier bell boxer, too. So I guess if you got a propaganda platform, that means you're okay and you're righteous, right? So you, you know, if you got a show where you got over 300,000 listeners, shouldn't you be not preparing for your show? <laughs> that's another lie. No, that's Warren, another lie. That's another lie, again. Joe. That's another lie. I don't. I never said I had over three hundred thousand listeners, but that's that's how he when lied. Everything come out of his mouth is a lie. Warren, when have I ever insulted this man, you? You this man is me. a complete liar. But hang on, go back how to hang on. Go back to what you said. Wait a minute. How many listeners do you have? I have 66,000 listeners, over 66,000. All right, now, okay, so if you got 66,000 listeners, shouldn't you not be pairing a show for them so it would be subsidence and something that would hold well, them instead of fooling around well, on Joe? Well, let me ask you this. Why you don't have your own show? Why you want to go on other people's shows and because try to control their show? Because I don't want no show. Because you don't know how. Yeah, you don't know how. You're not capable. You're not capable. Which you saying that. You're not capable. You don't know how. You're a fraud. All right, let me ask him a question. Let me ask a serious question here. So, Warren, basically the bottom line is this. So the American Republic and the Constitution you don't support, correct? Am I, am I right or wrong? 
I never, I never said that, Joe. See, that's that's your imagination. Oh, I, See, I, I can't imagine. That's I'm what you want to believe. What I'm saying I'm is, Joe, you. is the Constitution, the Constitution as it is on paper, never has been fulfilled. It's not what I'm asking for you. For segments of the American population. What hasn't been fulfilled? What hasn't, what hasn't been, fulfilled? been fulfilled? Yeah, I'm curious now. You got me. Yeah. <laughs> what hasn't been fulfilled? Joe, the very what? fact you've had to have the very fact you've had to have Supreme Court cases and laws to address the inequality of black people and other that's people. Hasn't been ever, yet. Since, ever, since, ever since the Constitution ever since the Constitution was written showed you that and the fact you got amendments, the fact you got to have amendments to address those elements in the population who were not receiving the rights since the Constitution was run shows you right there. The Constitution never was real. Segments of the American population. Well, you just made no Joe, sense right there. Joe Gibson, Joe Gibson, yeah. let me say this. Slaves were not citizens of the United States. Their domicile was where they were expelled from. Yeah, exactly. So well, what are you talking not about, citizens of the United States. I don't know why it's so hard for him to understand about that. That's why we keep yeah. saying slavery was wrong. Because they weren't yeah. allowed to be citizens. Yeah. How can you, you not have the right citizens of the United States? No more than illegal aliens come across the border. Now, now, Joe, I want to yeah. address a question. Joe, I want to address a question Lori put in the chat room. Lori, okay, said, answer. I don't want to address answer, that on me because I'm a president. Hang on, Sarge. Hang on, Sarge. Let's see what Lori said. Go ahead. See, see, Joe, see, Joe, when I speak, I speak with clarity. I speak I with clarity. I know, Lori, Lori. What did Lori but, say? But you allow, but see, you allow huh. deck, room decorators to come in. Why do you got to criticize and start another so, argument? Because Why? they need to, because, Joe, they should be criticized. These guys are horrible. Yeah, okay, well, they're garbage. They're garbage. to matters that oppose. Okay, let me, let me, let me, let me address Lori Ann. I'm not. Could All right, you, go could ahead. Finally, go. Could you mute both of our address, Lori Ann? I'm not going to mute them, but nobody say nothing. Go ahead, address Lori Ann. Go ahead. Okay. Dear Lori Ann, if you have ever taken the time to listen to as many shows as you were able to where I had guests, you would know, number one, I've had numerous guests who are white. Number two, if you ever took the time to examine where I focus my disdain and my angst, it is towards whites who are conservatives and also blacks who declare themselves to be conservatives. So to accuse me of hating all white people is another deflection from the fact that I hone in on particular talking points and political perspectives that you and others hold. Okay. Now, Lorianne, what do you got to say about that? I wish she would press one and, and, and address Don't you uh, verbally. Because, Joe, because people, are afraid, people are afraid to confront me. Because they don't, I don't know think how she's to afraid. operate away from the I ain't afraid of you. I, all here I'm afraid of is you're going to run away and hide. I ain't afraid of you just one little bit. Hey, you bring all your buddies, too. I'll take all of you on at once. 
I don't think uh, that Lorianne is afraid of addressing you, Warren. She has her own podcast show, so she's not afraid to speak to somebody or, or back down from somebody. So I doubt, seriously doubt she's afraid of you, Warren. I think she's um, probably busy right now and probably can't call in, but she's in the chat room. You, ha- you have had white people on as guests. doesn't mean you don't hate white people. That's true. That's true. But she just no, said right there. No, let me, let me be specific. I hate white conservatives. That's who I hate. And I hate their black slaves and emotional support dogs called black conservatives. You know, I think he might actually be on to the truth here. I think he's wearing the truth truth that I want, but I think that's more (laughs) accurate as he wears hate for his life. He'll probably be, he'd be very happy with a bunch of self-hating, complacent white people that he could cow in a submission, but he definitely doesn't like white people who stand up for their beliefs, their principles, when they are antithetical to his. He doesn't like them white people whatsoever. But he'd be probably content with a bunch of sirs he could boss around. So I think he actually just said something that is much closer to the truth than he just flat out hates white people. Yeah, yeah. So there you have it. There you have it right there. So you made you made a truthful statement, but why? Why do you hate white people? Oh, he definitely hates Dan Pianchi. Ain't no doubt whatsoever about that. That's a damn show. So you hate me, and you hate Sorry, and you hate Pianchi. Let me tell you, Joe, I was born... In 1958, I was born in a segregated city. I was born in a segregated hospital. In fact, the hospital I was born in was an all-black hospital. Very good hospital with very good doctors. I've seen things over the course of my short life, and I've seen how whites who express contempt for black people change the rhetoric of how they express contempt. If you listen to Lee Atwater who was one of Ronald Reagan's political operatives, he explains in an interview how the Republican Party captured that angry Southern Democrat voter. You use coded language, the Southern strategy that had been employed earlier. He talked about in an interview, all you got to do is go to Lee Atwater on YouTube and you can hear the interview, of how you change your attitude, your, your rhetoric against blacks, and how you cover them and stuff like uh, states' rights, uh, welfare queen, and all of that kind of stuff. But really what you're saying is, nigga, 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 I hate niggas. So this conservative movement, that's all that is. Because conservative means to preserve what is, to maintain the status quo. And so those people who were against the civil rights movement, they were against black people's political and economic advances, were the ones who declared themselves conservatives. Really? That's how you, that's no, how you the digress. The I call myself yeah. a conservative because, look, I don't want to conserve everything. You're foolish, you're foolish if you live in the world. I don't want to conserve be conservative because to conserve the principle of bleeding people when they have disease, but that's not a conservative principle worth hanging on to. I want to preserve the uh, traditions of conservatism that are good and positive, such as the scientific method such as the epistemological method, such as Socratic teaching, such as all the things that are timely, transcendently, objectively true, and proven. That is the sort of conservatism that I espouse. Not everything that you want to preserve and conserve, because not all of it is good. So it depends on what you're talking about. This guy is categorical in his statements, because he doesn't have the intellect to make discernment. He is a yeah. he is a he is a programmed propagandist. 
He can only speak yeah, now, to propagandic, sloganeering stereotypes. What we should be talking well, let's about address here what is Lori, Can I address something Lori said? Lori said, uh, he's saying you've had white people on as guests doesn't mean you don't hate white people. And that's I very true. That it doesn't mean I don't hate white people. But it's no different. That comment, I guess, would be like a lot of white people saying, I can't be racist because I got black friends. But if you listen to any one of my shows, you would never at any time hear me say, I hate white people. I, uh, you, in fact, you never even hear me allow a caller to call in and to go in that direction. You just said you my hate conservatives like it's My focus, my focus, my focus, you see, I'm, get, make, I'm talking to Lori and the person who thinks he I knows something. He wants to ignore what he just said. He wants to ignore it. He didn't even want to try to explain it. He just wants to ignore it, pretend it was never said. Yeah, you so said you hate never, never, Lori, never at any point, no, Lori. And you see, Lori, Lori, yeah. that's what racists do. Lori, that's what racists do. They project on other people what they themselves do. But never in my show, never in my show, never in my show do you hear me blanket all white people. I focus on white conservatives and their rhetoric now, what you said you hate. I hate white let me say it again for nobody's mistaken. Brother Warren, host of New Orleans Wake Up, hates hates H A T E S white conservatives and their servants support dogs, black conservatives. That's what I said, so why did you deny it? Oh, the question was, why do I hate white people? I don't hate white people. I hate white people. No, I'm repeating back what you said, man. I said, I know okay. you hate us. I said, you hate me and Pianchi because what you characterize as black, emotional, conservative support dogs. You and Pianchi you and and are the worst. Conservative you, you and Pianchi you and Pianchi are the worst. You and Pianchi are you and Pianchi. you realize you're cornered and you got no way out, then you decided to reiterate it. But see what it takes to get you to the truth. We should be talking about Warren as, as, as what's going on here in this country. And you're, what you're doing is you're talking about your personal feelings, on, 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 uh, which I never talk about here on my show. Well, wait, let me, let me, mean, let me address something Lori. Hold on. Let me address something Lori said. Because see what Lori's saying is very, very important, and we need not shy away from we, we might get cut off, huh, Joe? We're going to get cut off? No, we're, we're still I, – I think we'll be all right here for a few. Go ahead. So we got cut off the other night. Okay, Lori said. I know, yeah, um, I know. But I think I got about ten minutes left in the red on the red. All clock. right, well, we, I'm ahead. gonna say this. I'm gonna get off here. Okay, Lori says, you, uh, okay, laugh out loud. Yeah, that's why you go to quote unquote crying white girl tears. That is both racist and sexist. But since you are better than everyone else, that's okay for you to do. Let me explain this. What we mean by white? Let me explain what we as black people, real black people, mean when we say white girls' tears. White females have caused the death and the imprisonment of black males over time with the fake I'm a victim crying. So, unfortunately, what? you fall back on that, Lori. You fall back on that kind of behavior. Yeah, he wanted to round what? up Carol and Bryant and put her in jail for what she uh, reported oh. about Emmett Till, allegedly. 
So what I'm saying oh. is, Joe, is Lori. He remember Lori how he said that? He was really upset Lori, about that. Lori, not Lori Ann understands that when a white female start crying and blaming the black guys for their crying, it's going to arouse white guys like you, Joe, to come after me. And that's what you all no, have been taught really. over the no. generations. No, it's not. It's not, actually. It's that's not. why you have these situations, Joe, called Karen where white females instigate conflict with black people because they want the police to come in because they know the police going to be on their side and they want the black person and the police to get into it and then the police kill the black person. Well, well, let's look at the numbers, Warren. The numbers of black uh, on these interracial couples, the black men beating up the white girlfriends, the numbers are absolutely I, through I, the I roof. I, I can't – really, I can't – I don't know the statistics on that, so I can't speak on it. They're really bad. I do know – I do know – we do know – Against the holy water, that is the truth for you. Just let me know. Let me see what Lori Ann – Let me see what Lori Ann – Let me see what Lori Ann said. I know what Lori Ann said. Lori Ann says, oh, my God, here we go again. You make accusations, he but defending against him is being a parent of victim and crying white girl tears. Narcissism, retrospective. Well, let me say this. Yeah. Let me say this, Karen. I, I, I guess, in your view, a person like me, a confident, strong, intelligent, articulate black man, is a narcissist, a sexist, and a racist. I guess so, from your worldview. Well, no, no, no shortage of you have self-esteem, do you? And you definitely not you your own like, self-esteem now, are you? Well, he feels it's, you're putting yourself out there like you have something you want to prove. And that's what people are getting, and they're getting that vibe, like you know. And it's just, it's, and it's, it's narcissist. It's a narcissist type of I behavior. I have Joe, Joe. I ain't trying to prove nothing. I prove myself. The fact you got to have a whole army to come at me. Shows you how intimidating you yeah, guys are. Yeah, I told you, I'm going to bring your army against me, an army of one, pal. And you're too scared <laughs> to take the challenge. Because, of course, you, I'm beneath you because you're so goddamn superior. Now, all my upcoming broadcasts, Joe. Joe, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave. Hey, you and your little professor buddies, get three of them. All my upcoming broadcasts, Joe. I'll take you on. Get any one of your professor buddies. Let's agree on the subject, and let's get it on. Yeah, when's your next broadcast, Warren? I might do one tomorrow evening. Let me tell you what I have to do before I get to serious. I don't stuff. need no army. I have I'm to say you four to one. I have to say you and me. You and your four buddies. Joe, <laughs> I have to set this guy. This guy named Vincent Brown of uh, you know Robert Shaw. I have to set him straight. I got to teach him a lesson. So I'm gonna do a okay. broadcast highlighting the exchange he and I have been having an email when he wanted me to be a guest on his show to address my comments about him, but he would not give me any assurances that he would give me the same respect that I gave him when he was on my show. So I have to really analyze, psychoanalyze this guy before I go on to serious stuff. I may do it tomorrow. I may do it Saturday. I just haven't decided. But I'm going to spank him real good, and I'm going to move on with my life. Yeah, you better get one of your well, set up, dummies. You better not talk yeah. with me. All right, closing thoughts there, Sarge. Go ahead, give me your closing thoughts Yeah, like I said, man, this guy, look, man, he runs away from the truth. He distorts, he demagogues, he makes things up. He tries a little dime store psychoanalysis tricks. He runs away from facts. You get him cornered, he just weasels out like a... He cannot stand up to any fact or truth. He's utterly non-responsive, and he makes things up. That's the worst thing about it. He makes things up out of almost whole half cloth. I don't know what anybody thinks he has any validity whatsoever. He can do whatever he wants on the show. It's like I said, 
Joseph Goebbels had a platform, too. It was called the Volkischer Beobachter. And he didn't tell the truth one single goddamn day of his life. Brother Warren ain't much of a difference. <laughs> what about Andrew Jackson? Andrew Jackson was a mixed, a mixed bag of good and bad. And so we can tell the truth and the bad things about him, and it will put everything in historical context. I don't mind anybody as long as he tells the truth. Just don't make things up, because believe me, I'm a check. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I, I, I'm a fan of Andrew Jackson because he stood up against the banks. Uh, that's, uh, you know that. I'm against the Federal Reserve and the banks, and any president that stood up against the banks is, uh, is all right in my book. Uh, as far as the other stuff that happened, that's all speculation. We don't know. It's all written afterwards. If there was anything written at that time, at that time, and you show me, then I'll change my mind. But uh, as far as anything that's written years and years later, very skeptical about the Rothschilds and the Jews, how they control these. They write things about me. The ADL wrote an article about me. Everybody going to believe that? You know, so, you know, it's a lie. So, you know, again, you know, the facts are, the facts have got to be facts. And, and, again, I really wanted to address tonight some of the North Carolina politics, actually, because I am running for office here in North Carolina. That's, and uh, North Carolina is, like, ranked last <laughs> in a lot of places. That, uh, one of the uh, reports came out, and I wanted to address that, but I'm not going to have enough time, obviously. So, but, uh, Warren, do you want any final thoughts here? I'll give you a couple minutes here because I'll give you final thoughts. Do you want any? My mission here on the Block Talk radio platform has been equivalent to a saying that the Prophet Muhammad, the Prophet of the Muslims, have said. One learned man is harder on the devil than a thousand ignorant worshipers, and I'm hard on you devils. Okay, he called us devils. I guess we're devils then, huh? <laughs> I don't know about that, Warren. Uh <laughs> yeah, they're going to be cutting me off. Do you want me to play some Ronald Reagan here at the end, or what, what do we got here? Uh, oh, man, please do, man. Play... A time for choosing, that'd be great. Or the Berlin Wall. Yeah, let's see if I can find it. Yeah, see, if I haven't played that in a long time, boy, let me tell you. But, uh, yeah, because uh, I know Warren hates Ronald Reagan, right? Ronald Reagan oh, yeah, is an evil devil. Oh, yeah, that's all the more reason to play. <laughs> yeah, that'd be all the more reason to play it, I guess. Let's see if I can find it here real quick. I think it's greatest speech, though. Succinct to the point. Um, Beautifully yeah, delivered. Yeah, you're right. You're Gotta right. Put that on. You're right. Yeah. All right. We'll put that on. All right, everybody. Thanks. Now let's set the record straight. There's no argument over the choice between peace and war, but there's only one guaranteed way you can have peace, and you can have it in the next second. Surrender. Admittedly, there's a risk in any course we follow other than this, but every lesson of history tells us that the greater risk lies in appeasement. And this is the specter our well-meaning liberal friends refuse to face, that their policy of accommodation is appeasement. And it gives no choice between peace and war, only between fight or surrender. If we continue to accommodate, continue to back and retreat, eventually we have to face the final demand, the ultimatum. And what then? When Nikita Khrushchev has told his people, he knows what our answer will be. He has told them that we're retreating under the pressure of the Cold War, and someday, when the time comes to deliver the final ultimatum, our surrender will be voluntary, because by that time, we will have been weakened from within, spiritually, morally, and economically. He believes this because from our side, he's heard voices pleading for peace at any price, or better rev than death, or as one commentator put it, he'd rather live on his knees than die on his feet. And therein lies the road to war, because those voices don't speak for the rest of us. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. 
If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shockers around the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. Winston Churchill said the destiny of man is not measured by material computations. When great forces around the move in the world, we learn we're spirits, not animals. He said there's something going on in time and space and beyond time and space, which whether we like it or not, spells duty. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Napoleon had taken before 
and moving documentary called Adolf Hitler, The Greatest Story Never Told. I want you to do something for me as well, and I would really appreciate it. Before you listen to this interview, I want you to watch the documentary. I know you want to listen to this program right away, but if you haven't already seen it, I want you to stop this program right now and go watch the documentary first. And I'm adamant about watching the documentary because... One of the biggest hurdles that the majority of people seem to have, they're basically just kind of set in their ways and they argue that they already know everything that they need to know concerning this topic. Well, I can promise you, people, you don't know one-tenth of it. 
And I seriously had uh, a panic attack after I watched that documentary, The Greatest Story Never Told. Uh, and for days afterward, I was really shook, shook up. It was it had such a profound impact on me, and, and everything started making so much sense. And I felt so. I mean, I've always felt kind of betrayed by, by the powers that be, but I felt more betrayed than ever. And I started and I started looking back on my entire life, and looking back at all the movies that I'd seen. I just couldn't believe it. I thought if they could pull off this, then anything is possible. Anything. Yeah. You know, and. Uh, that one, you know, I would encourage anybody watching this or listening to this to, to watch that hasn't seen that documentary to watch it and, and go with, back with and, an open mind, uh, open mind, and listen to that interview that you did with um, Dennis Wise recently. But that's most likely what what got us censored from iTunes, by the way, too. That show. Yeah, well, that uh, shows it, what we're not allowed to talk about. It's just yeah, it's exactly. off limits, you know. That, and that's what when I was going through that sort of panic attack re- realization. That was it. That was the re- that was the big red flag. I was like, oh my god! Like, of course, of course, we're not being told the truth because we're not allowed to talk about this issue. When you're not allowed to talk about something, then that's that's like the red flag right there. If it's off yeah. limits, then that's the thing you need to talk about the most. And to, and the rule to remember is that history is written by the winner. I can promise you, people, you don't know one tenth of it. Here, you burn this. Sure, you wrote it big enough? Mm-hmm. Yes, old King George should be able to see that. <laughs> when, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, a decent respect requires that they declare the causes which impel them. In separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to establish new government. We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, do and with the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states that they are absolved of all allegiance to the British crown and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved in the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence 
We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. from whom I get uh, policy. I'm talking to Frank Gaffney. I talked to Richard Haas. And Richard Haas served under Colin Powell during this Bush administration over at the State Department. He's now the president of the Council on Foreign Relations.
challenge the idea of a one world community, a new world order. You know, they see that as... They see themselves as a government as opposed to a group of world leaders or people with influence at a global level who are talking about global issues, do they? They see themselves as, as headhunters. They'll, they'll get an up-and-coming politician who they think may be president or prime minister one day and, and as globalist industrialist leaders who believe that politics shouldn't be in the hands of the politicians. People talk to me about you know, the issue of Republican versus Democrat as if they don't get it. And I say, look, here's the way you get it. It's organized crime. All you do is you call the Republicans the Genoveses and you call the Democrats the Gambinos. The people at the top, they treat it like a crap game, like it's their crap game, like they're making lots of money. Occasionally, somebody at the table shoots each other, but the moment anything threatens their crap game, they all unite to protect it. They're both controlled by the same financial, economic, and corporate interests. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order, a world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order. It used to be more secretive. You know, the new world order was talked about 30 or 40 years ago, and uh, nobody would say it out and open. Now they right. talk about the new world order, or they just think the world would be better off if we had one yeah. world government. Right. I don't. I mean, I don't even like the size of our federal government, let alone one world government. It's a need for a new world order. Within the next four years, we will see the emergence of a new international the beginning. Order of a new international order. But there's a very, very clear-cut and easily identifiable system in place that puts all of these elements from media control to government control to energy control together into one apparatus working together effectively towards its final goal, which is you know, global control. A new world is emerging. It is a new world order. It's a phrase that I often use myself, that we needed a new world order. There is a chance, the President of the United States, to use this disaster to carry out what his father, a phrase his father used, and that is a new world order. Well, they inside a cabal, a conspiracy, if you will, to take control of the United States, lead us into a one world government run by them. Americans have been taught to expect their salvation from government instead of recognizing government as, a, as the most dangerous threat they'll face in their lives.